0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Before we get started, In the Blood, the next novel in the James Reese series is coming in hot on May 17th in hardcover ebook and audiobook and is available for pre order now. My guest today, Jason Casper. What a fascinating guy enlists out of high school, becomes an army ranger, uh, does two deployments as a ranger, comes back, goes to West point, gets his commission, goes to the 82nd airborne, goes to army special forces selection and training, and then deploys again as an army special forces officer and gets out and has written 16 thrillers. Uh, he's also been very open and honest about his struggles with some, uh, post-traumatic stress issues, which we discuss on the podcast as well. Fascinating guy. And now, without further ado, Jason Casper. Oh man, well, it's good to see you. I'm so glad we, uh, we linked up. We linked up, uh, I knew about, I've known about you for a while, because every time I go on Amazon, your books are on the top of my screen. So whatever algorithm they're using uh, to find out all that they know yeah. about me and what I'm going to like, like your books are at the, at the top, you know, those <laughs> at the, at the, the algorithm based stuff that they want you to click on yeah. all the way across the top. And then uh, then Kyle Lamb, uh, we have a mutual friend in Kyle Lamb and he, uh, he's like, oh man, you, you know this guy, Jason? I'm like, well, I, I know of him, but, uh, but I don't know him. And, uh, and that's how we got linked up.
1: Yeah, Kyle's a great guy.
0: Such a good dude. Such a good dude. I mean, what a wealth of experience and and so positive and just, uh, yeah, what an amazing guy. Uh, yeah, I just fortunate. listened to
1: your three-hour episode with him yesterday, oh, nice. man. <laughs> that was a marathon. Oh, what, a, what a great
0: show. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm so excited to talk to you. I mean, what an amazing run that you have had in the military, out of the military, um, and uh, looking forward to getting to know you a bit.
1: Yeah, I think you've done okay for yourself, too, Jack. You know, you've you've been doing all
0: right. (laughs) It's been a sprint, you know that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, I need to find some more, some more balance, and I know I keep, uh, I keep saying that, but uh, I feel like we're still building that foundation. Um, Sure. That's maybe other people were building while, like while we were in the military, yeah. um, that people were out there building businesses, uh, over that, you know, 20 years. And, uh, so I had to get out and kind of catch up, um, right. I still feel like I'm in that catch up phase as far as, you know, building the the foundation. But, um, uh, background wise, did you always know you were going in, in the military growing up and your, your brother's still in. So you do have some, some family, uh, some DNA there in the family that, that leads you guys to service. Um, but did you always know
1: you're going in like from when you were a little kid? I knew, I think by the time I hit high school, I was really hardcore. Like I wanted to go either do special operations or be a fighter pilot. So was
0: that, uh, the influence of popular culture?
1: Uh, you know, I just, I got so wrapped up in high school, like reading every Vietnam war book I could get my hands on, like every Tom Clancy, uh, and just kind of fell in love with, uh, with all of it. So I was, I was pretty dead set by the time I started high school. Okay. Spent a lot more time studying that than I did doing homework. So.
0: Same here. Same here. I was reading all those, all those same books, uh, on the fiction side of the house with uh, the Clancy's and David Morrell's and Nelson DeMille's and AJ Quinnell's JC Pollock's, all that stuff. And then also the nonfiction stuff that was coming out, whether it was a magazine article or a newspaper article or a book, an autobiography, whatever it, whatever it was, I just was, uh, you know, reading all that stuff. So it sounds very similar. And then did you graduate and go
1: and go right in? Yeah, I graduated, um, in Oh one. So I was in, uh, towards the end, infantry training, uh, during nine 11. And then it's off from there. Geez. So did, what was, uh, what was your basic, how does that work for, for the
0: army? And, and you went in really quick. So did you have to get like parental permission while you were in high school? So you knew yeah. uh, right afterward you are going in? Did you have to, yeah, I yeah. signed
1: right after my 17th birthday and did like the delayed entry program. Um, mm-hmm. and I also applied to West point. Um, I was like bottom 50% of my high school class. So they gave me the hard pass. Um, <laughs> and I enlisted, uh, and then, yeah, it was, I had a ranger contract. You do basic training, infantry training is kind of rolled up at the end of it, uh, at Fort Benning and then airborne school and then straight to rip, which is like the the regiment selection process at the time.
0: Yeah. I remember guys going through that when we went after buzz, they sent us to, to Benning. So I still did that. And you know, it was cool to to look up at all those uh, that the what is it the swing landing trainer and all that stuff that yep. looked like the black and white videos that you saw of like World War II in <laughs> Korea of guys doing the same yep. things. Not much like, has it, changed. I, no, <laughs> but, you know, I went through and when did I go there in 1997, fall of 97, I think. And uh, man, yeah, it, it it probably looks exactly the same today for for static line. Yep. Um, two days of training crammed into to three weeks, I think, is what uh, what how it was described. Yeah, and it's pretty uh, accurate. <laughs> where was your basic though what it was you are you in with everybody and then you kind of like but you already have your ranger contract so you know kind of like we had the dive fair program which gave us in uh, uh in in navy boot camp just the opportunity to try try mm-hmm. out um but you already know you're going and so where, where's your basic is it like fort polk or something
1: uh no it's all at fort benning now they call oh, it fort, fort benning. benning fort benning school for boys yeah all the infantry guys go to the same it's called oh, okay. one station unit training so it's basic roll straight into you know your infantry job training in one big like 14 week block or something like that. Oh
0: god, so you're in. And there's no is there time off between uh like your boot camp and, and no. going to jump school? No, you're just going.
1: Yeah, straight through.
0: Nice. And then uh and then what was the Ranger indoctrination uh program? That's just like a a pre-phase before Ranger school? Is that how that works?
1: Uh it's that's the gateway into Ranger Regiment if you're enlisted. And it's it 3 week basically smoke fest for privates like uh, you know, you, they do the land, have all the physical assessments, swim tests, everything else. Uh, but for the most part, they just, you know, at the time just crushed souls, um, (laughs) and got everybody who would quit to quit. Um, and by the end, you know, anybody left standing pretty much went to, uh, you know, you have your graduation, they pin your scroll and are like, it's harder to keep than it was to earn by good luck. And then they send you off. And I went to a ranger company that had, uh, just gotten back from Afghanistan um, wow. in October '01. So they were like, uh, so they had jumped into Afghanistan. They all came back with a combat jump and their, you know, combat infantry badge. And then, like, you know, I'm the new guy in the company, like late 2001. Yeah. So, the crop that I sh- reported the third battalion with got uh, pretty demolished. I think we they lost like a lot of guys, like just quit regiment or got fired pretty quickly after that. So, it's a steep, steep learning curve. Oh, but you were in, was it still,
0: were you still in your boot camp when nine happened then? Or were you out? Yeah, it was, during- it was
1: kind of the very end of infantry training. We were doing like, you know, the, we were on a field exercise and then, um, you know, it was like one morning we're all camping in the woods and the instructors had their cadre shack and, you know, we uh, just, everybody was up like ready to go. And like the instructors just never came out. And then, um, you know, drill sergeant popped out and was like, who's from New York city like who's got family in the world trade center, like pull that one kid. Um, and then they, you know, told us tower got hit and then second tower Pentagon, like we're under attack. And, um, we had, you know, some time just to talk to our friends and I got together with all the guys in the ranger with the ranger contract, you know, my buddies. And I was like, dude, we gotta, like, we have to quit, like drop our ranger contracts, forget airborne school and like, get to a unit before this ends. Cause I had the frame of reference, like, yeah. you know, Grenada, Panama gulf war exactly. um you know battle of mogadishu everything's you're gonna miss it very short you're gonna miss it and uh we had a, a uva grad with me who'd actually like spent a lot of time in college like written papers on afghanistan and he was the first one he was like this is coming from everybody's thinking china the whole time we were in basic that's a big war and he was like it's going to be like afghanistan or terrorists out of afghanistan um and we're like, oh, it's like, what are you talking about, man? And uh, he said it again that morning and and uh, turned out to be right. And he was also the one talking. about to, talk to me. I was like, listen, people, like countries don't go into Afghanistan and get out quickly. Like, you're not missing anything. Like, told what we got. And uh, yeah, ended up being very right. Interesting.
0: Oh, man. As a student of warfare, I thought I was going to miss it, too. Because once again, my frame of reference was the same yep. as yours. And, uh, you know, we were on deployment when it happened. So we thought we were going to go right in. We're like, wow. Okay, awesome. But everybody back home. Thought they were going to miss it. And then we ended yep. up just doing shipboarding operations uh, for team three, who then went into Afghanistan. So we thought after that happened, we're like, oh man, we missed it. Um, Cause now we got to get back in this rotation. It's for sure, sure going to be over. And then 20 years later, of course, you know, we saw how that, uh, everything turned out. There was no uh, threat of actually missing it. Um, no, nope, No
1: danger <laughs> of missing it. Um, you know, you could have waited 10 years to join and still gone to the show. My yeah. team leader in Ranger Regiment, actually, he passed special forces assessment and selection as a corporal as an E-4. Uh, which is a pretty big deal. Cause they don't, they didn't take many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, we were in Afghanistan Oh two. And he was like, yeah, I'm I'm going to skip the qualification course. Like I'm, I'm not going to like take those orders and go to special forces. Cause I don't want to miss the upcoming one year war with Iraq. Wow. And at the time we were all like, dude, that's a really smart call. Like you don't want to,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. you don't want right. to be stuck in training. Right. Right. You don't want to be knew. in school. Oh man. So wild. So you get to, to to Ranger Bat and and you go through Ranger School at this point. So you go to uh, Ranger you School. You
1: usually do um, a year or two in Ranger Battalion and, and then, then you go, go to Ranger School. And that's kind of when you come back from Ranger School and you become a team leader. Now, I didn't do that. I didn't go to Ranger School with uh, Ranger Regiment. I deployed twice and did Afghanistan O2. Uh, invasion of iraq in 03 and then i got accepted to the west point prep school so like right after the invasion i shipped out to uh the prep school it was a terrible decision but yeah and then i was prep school for a year west point for four years like wow the war is still going on this yeah. is crazy and then um yeah came back out of that went uh airborne infantry uh was with 82nd for platoon leader yeah. time did another like 12 month to afghanistan with them and then um went to special forces after for that
0: how are those first two deployments? So you're deploying as a Ranger with uh, guys who already had a deployment under their belts or some guys yeah. anyway, had a, a deployment yeah. or two under their belt, probably with a task force or something like that. And then yeah. you guys go, you guys go in. What was that like? Brand new guy, first deployment, uh, Afghanistan, still fairly early on.
1: Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it's definitely like winning the Super Bowl and we're all very, all, me and all the new guys, like very grateful to be there. Um, and even our company, they did, uh, they did that first jump in October 01. Yeah. Uh, took the you know took an airfield and they were kind of in and out back to Pakistan mm-hmm. um, did some support stuff for for other guys and then uh, yeah it was it was very often to be there but it was also like the country was pretty quiet no too. I mean the, the Taliban had learned like okay we can't be marching around in battalion-sized formations to get bombed um, so a lot of them had flushed across the border or, or were keeping their heads down um, and we you know we'd get shot at like there was there was combat but nothing like my last trip there in 2015 which is just gangbusters um wow. not a good indication of uh, how national strategy was going you know but right. yeah it was uh, afghanistan was my quietest deployment was 02. that first one yep
0: yep no kidding are still um, figuring it out the bad guys are have already adapted yep. we're trying to figure out these intel cycles and and uh how to yeah. run the human over there and not end up settling somebody's centuries old feud um exactly. because they yeah. can drop some <laughs> drop some intel that we're eager to go after yeah um, yeah so i guess we're, that's the time where i was we're figuring that stuff out i guess huh
1: sure yeah and the bad guys are figuring like okay they've got night vision they've got infrared lasers they've got air support and uh yeah they were very cautious um and then iraq was you know you came back. Little, so you did, was it a three month or at that time over there? Or did. You did like a, yeah. I think it was three or four months uh, to Afghanistan, that first trip. And then the, um, you know, then we kicked out to uh, Iraq for the invasion in March. Um, did you go right from one to to like another, were you at the end of 2002
0: or did you go home first? Fresh, you went home it, first. Do a yep. little, another workup type of reef thing. It.
1: Yeah. And then they were, you know, they were handing out all the Iraq intel, and they were like, we're redeploying to Afghanistan. You know, you weren't supposed to tell your families or anything. Uh, but it's all over the news. When I was there right. in summer, fall, oh, two, um, you know, we checked the news. To see if It was that mission we did on the news. And it was just like road to Iraq. We're invading in the spring. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was a it was a real quick uh, turnaround, train up for Iraq, uh, mostly practicing airfield seizure stuff. Um, and then uh, my company jumped in. And I was like the cherry because I only had one combat jump and they all had two. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, it was the, the invasion was just awesome. I mean, like flying in Napa the earth, like ant full on anti-aircraft fire, like lighting up the <laughs> windows. Um, and then we took a desert, jumped into secure desert landing strip and they landed in the C-17s night stalkers offload all the rotary wing, um, wow. start running ops. And then Dev grew was running missions out. And we held the airfield for about a week, just every night watching the, the fireworks over uh, Baghdad, hearing like the the B1s, B2s rolling in and out overhead, um, and then they were like, you know, they were probing us at the airfield. Um, and uh, interestingly, like, I, I'd see them. I'd be pulling guards. This pool table flat um, by Al qaim Iraq, you know, for them to select it for a you know a landing area. So you'd see, like, their observers, you just see, like, a little glint of a windshield, like, roll up over the horizon, and then it would roll back out of sight a minute later. They probed us all week. Um, We didn't get hit, and then we were breaking down the airfield because Alpha Company did another uh, combat jump and took H-1. Uh, So we were breaking down, flying by C-130, shuttling over there, collapsing the perimeter with each load of C-130 troops. (laughs) And uh, the... You know, my platoon was the last platoon on the ground at the airfield. We've been living out of a hole in the ground for a week, you know, um, uh, just getting rain on like torrential uh, rain, like mud, and baking hot. And the nights were freezing, you know, Iraq. So we'd collapse the perimeter down. And I just happened to be looked like the, the bird landed, um, you know, slowed down, braked, did its turnaround where it had done a turnaround for the previous platoon shocks. And then uh, just, mortar rounds started coming in i mean the first one missed the bird by maybe a hundred meters like they were yeah. pretty dialed in and then yeah. it was just get out of the fucking birds oh, and wow. the, those pilots like balls of steel like they held yeah. they held their wow. ground until it was just racing through you know the, the prop blasts you're running through total brownout you can't see anything oh, and everybody literally piles into the back of an aircraft and they like the combat controllers like racing in with their atvs and every just like diving out of the way and then they started like as soon as the first sergeant said last man like just max throttle uh take off and uh Damn. you know flew us over to h1 and that was like the start of deployment so very different from afghanistan o2 and uh, a lot of fun wow. welcome to iraq oh, yeah man. right
0: Interesting. So like, even in 2009, I remember they were switching us all around. You're going to Afghanistan. No, you're going to Iraq. No, you're going to the Philippines. No, you're going. It was like just this circle and no one knew where we were going. And, uh, but I remember they were being very secretive. Like, they don't tell anybody that you're going to Afghanistan. And it was like, have you, have you not watched the news for the last nine years? I think um, the word's out. But it was, but it was like these senior level guys that hadn't done any actual combat. It was like their first time, and they were gonna not gonna be in a talk, of course. You know, they're gonna be yep. uh, allocating assets and you know leading from the talk. You know, as O5s and mass chiefs and that sort of thing. But um, so they were all secret squirrel about these sorts of things, and yeah. everybody else is kind of like, you know, we've already been there. Well, we've been there for <laughs> nine years, but all, all of us have been in and out of there for the most part. But yeah, um, yeah that, was, that was crazy. But we're welcome to Iraq, and it was interesting. So I was just behind you in all these places. But I was in Afghanistan when everybody picked up, when task force picked up, I was augmenting, just helping, you know, help it. it was, anyway, it was, it was really, it was a great experience for me. But uh, the whole task force like picked up and went to Iraq, like this huge, yeah. I mean, you know what a task force looks like and that intel package and the legit, like all of that picked up from Bagram and went to Iraq and left like me and one other. I'm a brand new officer. I was enlisted like you first. And, uh, but now I'm an ensign, whatever, but I'm not wearing any rank because. Uh, when dealing with big army from the Navy, you know, they assumed I was a major because I was a little bit older, right. you know, because I had that right. enlisted experience or whatever, yeah, I'd that uh, out. And, <laughs> and had been on a few, you know, whatever, I had had a little experience under my belt at that point. Um, but everything lifted off and moved, and it was very telling um, about how we we're shifting our resources to uh, a new, new theater. Um, but I got a ton of experience because all that huge package, as you know, what a task force looks like, now it's like me and one other. Guy uh, supporting the outstations and getting these mission approval processes through big army yep. and allocating these, you know, figuring out the, the, uh, what was it? The blue, re- the resupply birds, all the different outstations and all that stuff. And so it was interesting. I learned a, learned a ton when all that support left, but I had yeah. about a month with them there, maybe two months, and then they picked up and left and then did the rest of it. But um, so I was just behind you, I think in Afghanistan and then got to Iraq in 2004. So I was just behind you there as well. Um, and was your brother up in Missoula? Is that what I heard at some point? Was he striker? Uh,
1: yeah, he was striker okay. at the time. So he was there. Um, yeah, he was, you know, he went, uh, post invasion. So yeah, he was there a bit after I was. So maybe I was, uh, I was up there with, uh, the striker
0: brigade in, uh, 2004 in Missoula. So maybe he was there at the same time. I don't know. Yeah. That would have been
1: around the time frame.
0: Okay. Yeah. It was interesting. And I passed back through in 2005, so we did a bunch in a row at the time, um, but uh, yeah, what, what a crazy, what a crazy experience. So, so you saw that too. You saw the whole uh, the, the task force infrastructure. You saw everything shift to Iraq uh, on your first deployment to Iraq. Yeah. Previously, having been in Afghanistan, uh, did that register with you, or are you just like, hey, I'm I'm a, a
1: ranger. I'm here on the ground. I'm gonna get the we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna start crushing souls. Um, Dude, at, the, at the time, I was. I was thrilled, you know, looking yeah. back now, like you don't need to be a, a history major to understand like, <laughs> Hey, this, this might not be a great idea. Like you yeah. bite off on one endless counterinsurgency and yeah. hey, kick off a second with no evac plan from either place, uh, right. and leave the first country resource starved during your golden hour, you have to build everything. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, wish I could say, I thought that at the time, um, but no, I, I was thrilled. You're like two wars, uh, like back to back, like this can be incredible. Uh, but, yeah, Ranger Regiment actually deployed all three battalions to Iraq simultaneously for the invasion. I have one company in Afghanistan, um, and I have a buddy who was one of those guys. He was, like, the only mm-hmm. company in Ranger Regiment to miss the invasion. Uh, and, yeah, looking back, I'm like, man, that was really, really a bad idea, you know? Like, yeah. Oh, six man. months in the graveyard of empires. Just drop the mic, walk away. Like, yeah. We oh, you know we paid the price for the next yeah. twenty years, and Afghans are still paying the price now. I still got a terp over there, and a couple of families we got across the border to Pakistan that we're trying to figure out. Oh, wow. You know, run humanitarian parole and uh, special immigrant visa applications, and it's just a nightmare. Oh wow,
0: God. yeah, crazy. What a crazy two decades. Um, and did you know already that you were eventually going to put in a, a packet to go to either OCS or to uh, to West Point when you uh, when you came in
1: uh, enlisted. Yeah. So I you know, I applied out of high school mm-hmm. and I sold my parents on like the contracts, the backup. Um, but I mm-hmm. was at that point, you know, I can't say like oh, I would have turned down West Point, but I might have because I like mm-hmm. read Black Hawk down and I was like, holy cow, like 19 year olds in combat. Like, um, that's like what I like. Why mm-hmm. would you go straight to school? And at the time I didn't I thought, you know, the Rangers were out hitting terrorist camps and low this right. stuff. I didn't realize it went from like Mogadishu to one. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I'd sold them on that. West Point didn't take me. I reapplied uh, from Ranger Regiment and I, I just wanted to go to West Point because I'm an idiot and all the officers and <laughs> West Point grads included um, in my Ranger company, like pulled me aside and were like, listen, like, Jason, you want to go be a, um, you know, you want to be an officer, that's cool. Uh, do green to gold, do ROTC, like wait a while. and do. It oh, they were like, like, don't do it. You do not want to go to West Point. Like it's awful. And, um, you know, I'm just, you know, stubborn. I'm like, no, it's <laughs> like, that's the toughest. I want to go to West Point. Had we, you, v- you know, visited like in high school? Have you been there? To just I had, uh, my brother went there. So I had visited okay. um, and I was like, yeah, this place is awesome. Um, and looking back now, I was like, I really should have listened to them. Uh, really? But, you know. Yeah. And I look back now, I'm like, why did you go? And the only good reason I can think of it was, is because they said I couldn't. So I think it was one of those oh, things. Interesting. I get I told it. Me, I'm like, I'm going to show you. And then I right. got there and I was like, wow, I should have taken that hint from the universe and not ever gone here. So.
0: Wow. What was it like to have combat under your belt and now be in school with a lot of people, most of them uh, coming from high school uh, that, that hadn't seen combat yet? Was that strange? And uh, and you, had, you went to prep school first. So mm-hmm. they have a prep school. I know the Navy has one too. I think the Navy's one is in maybe Rhode Island and then you go to Annapolis so is uh is prep school for West Point uh co-located or where is that It was in
1: Jersey at the time I went it's now co-located on on the West Point campus
0: Okay and uh, it is a beautiful campus like if you're not going there um like it, that that architecture is I went up there in January of 2005 maybe and I think that was it but I went up there because I had been involved in uh the battle for Najaf working with mostly conventional Army units out there I had my SEAL yeah. sniper team and a bunch of other things. And uh and so I came there to talk about um went to Eisenhower Hall and uh yep. on stage there. It was crazy. Um, yeah. I spent the whole day and they showed me how they did the the feed everybody and I got to see all that and they gave me the tour and everything. Um, but I was talking about um can uh special operations support for conventional forces uh and how the paradigm had kind of shifted from a training mentality of, oh, everyone's gonna support us and our little bubble in special operations yep. and they're here for us to yep. wait a second, got to the ground <laughs> and a job. And I'm like, no, no. And supporting us. I'm here to support, support, uh, two, seven cab at the time, sure. uh, that everybody that was attached to retake the, the city of Najaf. Um, and how that, that worked out my relationship with the, uh, uh, with the battalion commander and all that stuff. And so it was a really cool experience to be on that stage and get that tour and see all that. Yeah. But the architecture stands out to me to this day and the museum that I think was just outside the gate, uh, when I was mm-hmm. there and now might be inside the gate. They might've pushed it, I think for security or something. Anyway, I can't remember. It's been a while, but, uh, that is a beautiful place. If you're not, one of the students, I think. Uh. I realized that, yeah,
1: I went back to my 10-year reunion and I was like, wow, it's gorgeous here. Yeah. Like, it's a great place to bring your family. Uh, yep. You know, not so much if you're a cadet there, but
0: take what you can get. Yeah, no, that's wild. So, what was it like to be in school when you know that some of the guys that you had just deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq with are doing more pumps downrange? Did you think about that, or were you just like, "Roger that," going through uh, school now, and then I'll uh, I'll shift back to uh, for you? I think it was 82nd after you got out. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, what was that like to spend four years? And was it five with prep,
1: or how does that work? Yeah, it's five with prep. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty much an ideal uh, recipe for a lot of guilt and shame issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, at the time when I left, I had a couple. There's one hey, this is all going to be over in a year, like be grateful mm-hmm. you got your time and right. this is going to end. It's lasting even longer than two weeks in Panama in 89. Right. Great. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I was, you know, I used to like, I was checking the news every day looking for KIA and like, um, you know, Tilman got killed right after, um, you know, and I didn't, I didn't know him or anything. I wasn't in the same battalion, but yeah. So I, I was constantly checking reports and I also like at the time I had a fiance and at the time I was not aware she was sleeping with, uh, you know, my best friend from high school. So, uh, yeah, overall, not not a lot of great decision making on my part. But, yeah, I, you know, I watched the news for that entire five year stretch and was like, wow, this is an ending and we'll get a chance to go back. We're lucky we'll catch the end because they're doing the surge yeah, in Afghanistan. Right. It's all about to shut down. Uh, so, yeah, I kind of bought into the party line like totally. And I was like, this is like, I'll be lucky to get back out there as an officer. So anyway, I, I bring up the point about my fiance at the time, because there's an age limit at West Point. It's a very young, like age cap Mm. where, you know, if you're not under 21 or 22 at the time, it was something really, really young. Mm. Um, You know, when I was, I turned, yeah, 19, I think in Ranger Battalion. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I wanted to get in and out, get out of my life and, and everything else. And uh yeah, obviously it didn't uh, didn't work out great from that perspective. My my logic was a little flawed, uh but you know, I was a kid, so yeah. I'm not a right. rocket surgeon right now, but <laughs> it, as a 18 year old, nineteen year old Casper was actually way worse.
0: Oh man. But during that time you got to do like, I guess in the Naval Academy, I think guys go and they spend a a summer somewhere, they go like on a ship and see how that works or Mm -hmm. or whatever. And you got to go do something, something like that at some point and, uh, actually go and be part of a, uh, what, what staff almost for, for task force or something along those lines. Is that, how did How did that work?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I got really lucky. My, um, my brother at the time was, um, he was working he crossed over from infantry to uh, military intelligence and he was uh, working at second battalion 160th which is a cool battalion uh, and he worked this drug deal for me to get my top secret clearance and you know get an assignment there so i spent you know uh you know, like four weeks. Yeah, like working with them and getting to see the um the initial mission qualification process, the full mission qualification process for their pilots. Like even the guys when they're there for a certain amount of time, they have to do this whole like run on these really advanced mission plan where they're you know they spend days and days planning this mission and and get to the point where when they say like plus or minus thirty seconds uh-huh. anywhere in the world, like I was watching a, a full mission qualification that was like you know we went out of state to it like an offsite training area and they did a, a pretty complex setup procedure. And it was, uh, they were running little birds and there was, they did the startup process and like the engine flamed out on the first <laughs> startup. And one of the, one of the pilots, like an observer, um, he was next and he was like, if they flame out again, he's going to miss this hard time. And then the guy in charge of this is going to either disqualify, shut it down and send everybody back three States over to go home or let him run the mission just for the training, knowing that he's failed. And I was like, man, this is like their margin for error is nothing. Yeah. And I got to do the orientation it's like literally riding in adapts, like nice in a in a jump seat between the ammo cans and Defense you know when they're doing their. Yeah, it was just it was wild. Um, but I came away from that, and I got to do the little bird rides, You know, I like nice. They took me and my brother up at the same time to do like an orientation ride on are like you know where they land on like a little shipping container and put the skids nice. down and everything. And like I walked up and met the pilot. I was like, hey, my my brother says, uh, you know. You'll never make us puke. (laughs) He said, like, he said, you don't have any balls. My brother's like, Jay, like, stop, like, shut up. And uh, those pilots, man, um, they can turn and burn, uh, like nothing I've ever seen. And I know Kyle was just harping on the 160th uh, with his episode. But man, I came away from that. And I was like, these aviators are like every bit, the special operations warriors, anybody on the ground, period. And then uh, also at West Point, I I was on the skydiving team there. So they were flying Hueys at the time. And, uh, we had this new pilot come in he looked like really old. And, but I was like looking at his rank and it was like, it was so worn. I was like, is that a first lieutenant bar? Like, like, how is this guy like a 50 year old? Like I'm a warrant officer. You- <laughs> well, I met him. Yeah. He was a CW five and it was uh, Dan Gelata who was at Mogadishu, oh. And then he went and did some other stuff. He was the guy like flying over the city with the bullhorn saying like Michael Durant, we will not leave you. Um, and got to like have beers and everything with him and get like his life wisdom. And I was like, fully impressed. This guy, man, this guy's like special operations like legend. And then one time I saw him instead of a flight suit and like his regular ACU uniform, you know, like special forces tab, dive bubble, like wow. everything. And I was like, you used to be SF. He's like, yeah, you know, I, did this for a while on as SF, and I was like, man, this is like crazy. Like you couldn't be any more impressed with this human being as an yeah. individual. Both for you know his obviously flying abilities, uh, but also like his willingness to like mentor the next generation of people that are going to be going into the fight. Um, legend of a human being. And then the night before I went to special forces selection, got a got a phone call from D'Angelata. He was like, hey man, like keep your head up, like get through That's it. Like, awesome. <laughs> give him everything you got. Like best of luck. I know you'll kill it. Like man, like this is years after I, you know, had last seen him. So that is wild. Stellar people you meet in a community.
0: Yeah. Did you know uh, while you were at West Point that SF was your was where you wanted to go, or did you know that when you were in high school and then when you were Ranger? So yeah, I I, that
1: I I had my that's one of the reasons I wanted to become an officer. I I really wanted to be like a Green Beret team leader. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was the coolest thing. I remember being like. 16 years old having dreams of literally like at night having dreams about being like a Green Beret team leader. And I saw that as like the that was the job I really wanted. So I did, you know, everything I could to get there. And then I once I did it, I had like the pinnacle experience, like the ultimate, the best team I could have possibly had, um, the best deployments I could have possibly had, like everything worked out perfect. Um, and interestingly enough, when I was in Afghanistan in 02, um, we replaced first ranger battalion and there was a story circulating on Bagram about, uh, let's call it a particularly, um, grizzly and close quarters, uh, kill of an enemy combatant. So this story is floating around. We're like, my God, like, that was our first back. This is crazy. And then, uh, (laughs) fast forward to, you know, 2014 or whenever, like me and my team Sergeant were hanging out drinking and, just swapping war stories and everything. And he was like described this grisly close quarters kill of an enemy combatant. And I like in 02. And I like looked at him like, that was you? Like, That's we wild. heard about your whole deployment. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he had um, enlisted, went into second Ranger battalion out of Seattle, re-enlisted for first ranger battalion to be closer to home in Georgia. And so as a result, this guy did, I mean, he was like. And Operation Anaconda, Roberts Ridge, Jessica Lynch Rescue, um, did platoon sergeant time, conventional infantry, like an 18-month deployment with like gunfights every day, went special forces. And this guy had like at the time I started where we were like it, it was his 15th, 16th deployments, and wow. he had done stuff with task force in between. Um, so he just crazy, crazy yeah. team. started the kind of guy who's like, this guy was like bred for warfare. And then we had um really experienced, uh, non-commissioned officers together with like younger non-commissioned officers who did the 18 x-ray program mm-hmm. to go straight into the Q course that were just absolute rock stars. So we had the nice. full gamut, um, you know, and degrees of experience. And it was kind of just the perfect storm of people at the right place and the right time where by the time I came out, one, by the time I was done with my team time, I was like, I will never do anything. Like, I could stay in another 10, 15 years and never like relive anything like this.
0: Jeez. You had to go. So for SF selection, do you have to be a, is it a captain or
1: a first lieutenant or hat captain? So you had to be uh, a captain. You have like a one year window to pass selection. Okay. So I got my selection date and immediately the email came in and I wrote the guy right back. like, Hey, can I front load blah, 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 off this year group? Cause you know, my thing is, you get injured or whatever you might get one more shot within that year. If you're on the front end, otherwise you're, you're done. Like their officer timeline just said tight then. Um, So they front loaded me like the second class for my year group. Um, and you had I to go
0: 82nd. Did you deploy with 82nd first?
1: Yeah. So I, I came in as a airborne infantry platoon leader, which I'll say like that is the second best job I've ever had in the army. Wow. Like everybody talks about like special forces, team leader, um, special mission unit, like troop commanders. I think being an infantry platoon leader in combat was close second. Where'd you um, guys go? Uh, we were in Afghanistan. Right. So yeah, I did a 12 month trip with them. Uh, 12 and months. Had, That is no joke right there. What year is yeah, that? Uh, that was oh nine to 2010. Oh, dang. Wow. That's Yeah. Wild. So great experience with those guys. And, uh, you know, I said the same thing to Kyle, like everybody talks about special operations, but the, just the conventional infantry guys are so like undersupplied and under equipped relative to, you know, when we go out, it's, you have every cast medevac platform while <laughs> la, like they would send these guys and be like, Hey, we're dropping into this district, link up with the uh, ANA ANP, like the military, the police and figure it out, set up a base in the middle of town and start running ops. And uh, yeah, the, the sheer like grit with, with those guys. And then also we were detached. We were kind of out on our own. It was, it was similar to an SF mission. It's partner mm-hmm. force operations. We were out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, the battalion couldn't like, resupply us or support us uh, that much. Um, and it was there, I was already dead set on special forces, but that's where I really gained an appreciation for like that ODA, like the special forces team structure, with yeah. like weapon specialist, you know, uh, engineer right. specialist, uh, your, your medics, your combo guy as like this all made sense. Cause the, the radio operators, the guys who'd been to like the radio operations courses and stuff. Um, their time was at a premium to set up and maintain communications, long range, anybody with any like building construction, electrical wiring experience, those guys were working around the clock Our, you know, our platoon medic was constantly seeing like, you know, not just, not just tending to our guys' issues, but running every day, like running the Afghan military or Afghan police doing like med calls for them, doing it for local civilians, yeah. Um, yeah, so I was, I came out of that and I was like, this SF makes complete sense to me. And then when I got there, I was like, yeah, it still makes sense to me. Like, I, I think that that organization, I've got the highest amount of respect for them. It's just incredible what they can do with minimal manpower and no support. And they just figure it out.
0: Yeah. I'll tell you what the, uh, like you talked about special operations, getting, you know, the limelight and all that stuff. But, uh, Nothing but the utmost respect for those guys going in like eight second airborne yeah. dropped off in some place where they don't speak the language, told to figure it out. There's, you know, no AC 130s coming every night to make sure you're okay or there's no predator reapers up above and sure. there's no there's no stacked air for you constantly uh throughout the entirety of your mission that you're choosing the time and place of the engagement. Not all the time for the most part. Um and uh man, nothing but respect for those guys. I mean, every time I run across something, somebody like that, I have a conversation with with one of these guys out there and they feel like you're doing what? <laughs> No way you're out here by yourselves. (laughs) Like it was, it was incredible. Um, but and nothing but respect. Same thing, people that are out there, like that, that Marine E1, E2, E3 standing the gate guard duty, you know, at these things, like front line, like as a car is coming up, filled with a family, maybe or maybe something else sagging on suspension over there. Like what? Yeah. Like you don't, I mean, who knows? Uh, nothing but the utmost respect for those guys. Oh my gosh, just incredible. Um, so you do that. So you have a, a year on the ground in Afghanistan getting after it and then you come home and how long is the break between that and going to SF selection
1: um i went pretty quick i went the same year i got back so i had maybe 6 7 months to train up um, but my you know you don't start the qualification course immediately so i pretty much came back i became an executive officer rifle company executive officer here second in command, uh, behind the captain. And you're pretty much managing all the logistics, like all the property book accountability and everything, setting up all the training ranges, like all the administrative stuff, which is, um, you know, I went for months, just didn't see my house during the day period. Wow. Um, because you're, you know, working such long hours, the guy, they pulled me into replace was like drowning apparently for a year. So I came in like, here's 32 field loss, like flipples. Like when you lose equipment or get blown up or in this company's case, they had a whole base leveled by a a massive like VBID. Um, and miraculously nobody was killed, but the, the lost equipment. So he had like a year to do this and apparently didn't do any of it. Right. So I (laughs) fell in. I'm like, we were in garrison, you know, so I wasn't like missing out on combat, but it was just, crazy amounts of uh, administrative logistics oh, stuff um brutal. and I did that for a year went to selection about 6 months into it and then at the end of that year um went to the the military captain's career course which like, okay. qualifies you to be a company commander equivalent okay and then um straight into like the special forces qualification course at prague which like another you know year and a half okay and
0: how's that like how's robin sage and you know you hear about it. I've been reading about that since I was a little kid of course and um, how is that how's that experience
1: man, I have, I had the, the best experience the instructors. there are incredible. You know, you did like six months of language school up front at the time, um, which is a bad way to do it. Cause anybody who quits during the course has just had six months of classroom time, but uh-huh. I spent six months doing Arabic and then they send you into small unit tactics, which is basically ranger school. Okay. Um, it's also eight weeks long. It's also ambush patrolling reconnaissance focused. Uh, but the the, Special forces like SUT course, in my opinion, is like far, far superior. And I remember like we had some of the 18 x rated kids I was going through with um, were like, man, this must be so boring for you because you're doing all the same ambushes and stuff as ranger school. I was like, you know what? It's, it's not boring. I'm actually learning a lot because uh, I don't remember ranger school. Like they took sleep deprivation to such an extreme that like, I don't remember any of it. And they're starving and they did, you, right?
0: They're giving you one MRE a day or something like that. Yeah. Jeez. So, um,
1: I, you know, you want to snapshot of ranger? school. Well, here it is. Okay. Like <laughs> close your eyes. Now open them. You're looking through night vision. There's like a fallen tree that you just walked into at like waist level. There's nobody in front of you in the middle of the woods. You turn around and there's like 30 guys in a row behind you that have followed you up this hill oh, when geez. you like fell asleep while moving. Oh my god! And then you see like a, an instructor, like down the hill, like turning on a white, like everybody stop, stop. And like <laughs> racing up to recover your four students just disappear into the woods. <laughs> I mean, John, like guy in front of me in patrol, like turn around on a night patrol, and it's John Wayne, like chin strap unbuckled, like I'll show you the way, and just wanders <laughs> off, and I would follow him, and somebody would, like grab me, you know, and it's bad. Oh, Students checking each other the whole time. Now what they did in sp- small unit tactics with uh, you know special forces training, it's all the same instruction, all the same doctrinal ambushes. Mm-hmm. You have to learn, you know, by the books because you're going to be training other forces to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we would you know be out in the freezing rain for four hours in the ambush line. You you know you're. So you do the ambush, you action, the objective, whatever the mission is, um, you do your SSE, your site exploitation, get the Intel or whatever. And then you, you move out on your planned like your next patrol base or whatever. And they would let you move about 500 meters and they would say, stop, set up like quick patrol base, get a perimeter and like go to sleep. And they would make you sleep four hours a night. I remember every, everything from that. Oh, wow. I remember everything we learned. Um, I, I had I even sent a Navy, uh, support guy that was assigned to my team later. We were running, uh, we were actually under a seal command, um, in Africa and we were like on a Humvee ride. Like we were out, you know, between the villages and stuff. And he's like, oh, so what's, you know, what's ranger school like? Like I really want to go. And I was telling him, I gave him like a really great class, like just over vehicle comms on like how to set up an ambush. And it was all from SUT. Nice. So I think some of the sleep deprivation stuff gets overrated to a point, yeah. um, but yeah, eight weeks, and then SEER have been school, so the survival, evasion, resistance, escape, um, which is a, also a great time, phenomenal course. I oh, know wow. you guys, all, everybody goes to. Yeah. You know their their service branch's version of SEER school, but um, and then after that, they break you up into uh, your job specialty. So all the eighteen alphas, the officers, all go to like three, four months of just captain training. The specific to SF. Of- Yep. Okay. Cool. Um, that 18 echoes like the communications guys go off to theirs. The medics vanish for yeah, a yeah. year, like they are in a separate cycle because that the right. special operations combat medicine is insane.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, everybody splits up to their job training. Um, and then that, I mean, the second best training I've ever got after Robin Sage was like the 18 Alpha course, the nice. special forces, you know, team commander course. Um, they did such crazy scenarios. Um, without you know, betraying anything, any future attendees who are listening. Um, they put you in really crazy low vis route, civilian clothing, civilian services, meeting sources, running stuff. I mean, guys getting rolled up, like top car rolls up and it's dude jumps out and it's one of the cadre in a police uniform supported by local law enforcement, like throws dudes in the back. Like it's like, you're behind enemy lines, you know, running low visibility stuff. Um, full, like all the mission planning stuff was incredible. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that also sold me on the, on the officer piece because I know our first mission planning process, like, okay, this, we're not going to run this section. This is the first thing we did in the course. So like do a, a con-op, like a, you know, an operations plan for a special reconnaissance mission, uh, this location, here's your maps, here's your everything, and put together like the initial mission brief, right? Um, and we put this together. We spent like, I don't know, six, seven hours doing it. And we did a one hour brief for the instructor. He stopped us and we spent every minute of three hours with him picking apart everything about this presentation. And I, at the time I was kind of like jaded. I was like, man. And I I actually asked him, I was like, sure. Like, why does it matter? Like the fonts in the headings in these little granular things about PowerPoint, right? Why does that matter? And he was like, okay, when you go to, um, US Special Operations Command headquarters. They've got a giant map of the world. And there's a little like light or whatever, a little pin on like every spot where there's a US Special Operations team, SEAL platoon, Green Beret team, Ranger platoon, whatever. And they've got it says like a, the designator, the numerical designator for that team, and the last name of the commander. So he's like, when you send this product up, it doesn't matter if you've got the most pipe hitting group of guys in the universe if your products that you're sending to get the mission approval to get out the gate are sloppy and they're going to a talk full of, like you said, people sitting in these air conditioned headquarters and stuff that are giving you the a a, Um, He's like, if you're not representing the best efforts of your guys, like they don't get out. Like that's what you exist to do is to be the portal between your guys getting out and this keeping them shielded from this massive bureaucracy that approves right. this stuff at the political level. And I was like, Got it. And after that, I was wired in, I drank the Kool-Aid and I did everything they said, but incredible uh, training course. But at the end of that, though, all the students come together and they put you together in student teams. So if you're, you know, I was trained as a captain, like, cool, you're the team leader. And here's these guys coming back from the communications courses, you know, um, the engineering courses with the demolitions and everything. And then you, you get basically medics that started the course, you know, a year before you or whatever, right. but they put you in student detachments and you go out to Robin Sage. Um, and there was like a two week train up where it's you're they put you in again, crazy situations, but you might do five or six a day. Yeah. Like you go to a mock village and it's, it's actual like mountain yards mm-hmm. who came over from Vietnam at the special forces wow. and brought back after the Vietnam war huge Montagnard community in Fort Bragg or outside Fort Bragg and Camp McCall. And, uh, so it's straight up civilians and you walk in and it's, Hey, uh, you're in charge for this round go. And it's, here's a scenario. Like you're doing a, you're behind enemy lines. You're doing a black market arms buy. like walk into this bar and just crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and then they've got all the weapons and everything. And you, that's awesome. You need to figure out like, okay, that's an, <laughs> that's an anti-aircraft piece in the corner. That's a shoulder fired anti-aircraft piece. And like the lessons from it are like you buy that to get it off the market because it's going to hit your supply birds, you know, when you're getting your resupply. So crazy situations are then, you know, the villagers are about to like, they're mobbing a dude who, you know, they claim like, you know, raped a girl in the village or whatever. And the lesson is like, you let them do it and you report it at your convenience, but you do not interfere. Like you don't like they will kill you. Like they'll turn in your team type, you know, Mm. really, really cool stuff. Uh, working with partner forces and teaching these lessons that really get you thinking outside the box. And after two weeks of that, uh, doing the scenarios and also the mission planning for your Robin Sage infiltration. Mm. Um, it's, it's a huge planning process. Um, they treat it, at all unconventional warfare focused, um, which is, um, you know, for anybody who's not familiar, that's, you're going in to help the resistance overthrow governments. So it's Afghanistan 01, like on Horseback, like that's UW. It's the SF core mission. Um, and it's not that often utilized real world, but they have placed so much emphasis on it because if you can do that, you can do anything on that complex political spectrum where you're doing foreign internal defense or security force assistance and dealing with insurgencies and you know, military coups, if you're throwing the government, like if you can even in training execute unconventional warfare, you're so well equipped to operate in these really ambiguous circumstances, um, huge planning process, massive back brief where they bring in like SF group commanders and mm-hmm. Italian commanders to like receive your back brief. Um, and then you do the infiltration and it's, they've got a bunch of different lanes for Robin Sage that run all over the state. They've got hundreds and hundreds of civilian role players. Um, and you do your infiltration and without getting it any way, like every, every lane is different. So every team, some guys jump in, some guys are mm-hmm. riding mules or they're doing civilian vehicles. It's just a full gamut of this huge multi-phase infiltration to link up with a guerrilla unit, um, role players and everything. And they have people who speak your language and you have to speak to them in Arabic to negotiate your team's passage. Um, and then, yeah, you're basically in the box for two weeks straight, running out of a G camp, like a guerrilla camp, yeah. training and taking these people. And it's a pretty compressed UW. So you look at like the phases of unconventional warfare, um, it, it's really compressed where you do a certain train up period, then you start taking them to execute um, confidence targets, small checkpoints and stuff, right. teaching them and like, doing it real world, you know, for them within the training scenario where they're doing battlefield resupply and learning how to check intelligence and then setting up all your caches for when you get blown out of the guerrilla base, okay. you know, when the government finds it. Um, and then at a certain point, you cross what's called the threshold of violence where like, you don't want to escalate until everybody's trained, equipped. You've got established guerrilla bases. You've linked in with the area command, the other special forces teams um, and the other guerrilla units in the area, which might be a County over. Um, and you go to area command meetings, where you're, you know, you're meeting these other, captains that you were just in the course with and their guerrilla or G chief. So their guerrilla commander and linking everything together to a unified effort. And then, you know, you cross the threshold of violence and then you're doing like really big objectives, really big um, objectives, sometimes urban stuff. Uh, and doing this whole campaign at the end of it, it's all in the fictional uh, country of Pineland. Yes. And then at the <laughs> end of it, all the teams all across the state are doing actioning their major targets at once. So all the intel you're getting and all the updates goes off, like how did that team do? Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, by the end of it, you essentially hopefully overthrow, you know, the government and they install their own people and you go through the repatriation of, you know, your guerrilla force to either disarm or transition into, you know, police or military. And they do that whole thing in two weeks um, for the actual exercise, plus two weeks of prep. Integrating every small unit tactics, survival, evasion, resistance, escape, particular job training and uh, bring it all together. And it's amazing. Amazing. I think between the captain's course and the Robin Sage, that's actually for anybody who wants to get into writing thrillers, like (laughs) go, go through the Q course. Like, even if you don't get the combat, like the situations they throw you in are so crazy that you'll have inspiration for a lifetime. Like no question.
0: Uh, That's awesome, man. Yeah. You guys have like, Oh, such a great pipeline. Um, particularly well for everybody, but particularly for your officers when compared to Naval special warfare. Uh, like we have a junior officer training course now that, um, that I got to be the OIC for as I was getting out. And it was actually one of the most fulfilling, uh, assignments, uh, of my time in, in uniform, uh, just passing on those lessons and stuff like that. But yeah. I mean, your guys is, is amazing. And, uh, I got, I worked with SF quite a bit when I was in uniform, uh, in the Philippines had an amazing warrant officer from first group. And, uh, I got out there and i and preparing to go to Afghanistan, but ended up going to the to the Philippines and the Southern Island chain. And and uh, just, he was so awesome. And uh, fi- finding out about your guys' warrant officer program for SF in particular. Yeah. And I was just like, man, I want to go do that. Uh, I, want, I want that training that I just started reading to kind of catch up with him. Uh, because in, a, in yeah. Philippines, we had some time on our hands. So got in some pretty sure. good shape. I was doing a lot of reading. We had a, <laughs> a, a few different campaigns that we did in support of, uh, of the uh, Philippine Marine uh, uh, unit down there. But uh, You were running
1: uh, against Abu Saez? yeah i
0: mean yes ish or maybe some some gangster t- i mean it was a lot of uh, yeah. uh criminal enterprises more so yep. at that point than uh, actual okay. quote-unquote uh terrorism you know but okay uh, it was interesting so interesting so interesting i learned a ton i learned a ton from the the philippine marines i was working with like i took on the role of like a, a student to that uh, uh marine uh uh was he was a brigadier general? Uh, yeah. And I uh, just kind of took on the role of, of student and him being a mentor. And I just learned so much about that area and what they've been fighting for 100 plus years uh, yeah. down there. But uh, but the, the SF guys I worked with, I had more SF guys um, uh, working with them than, uh, than I had SEALs. And then when I ended up in Basra uh, in Iraq for the uh, withdrawal, and then I had more SF guys also in those outstations when I was a, a troop commander out there. But, uh, man, you guys have awesome, awesome training. Um, and it's just, it's, uh, you come out of there just as, about as well-prepared, I think, as you can be, um, yeah. without having, you know, real world, if you didn't have any real world experience, um, you come out of there so, so well-prepared. So you come out of there and now you get your team and, and where do you go?
1: Afghanistan. Back. Um, I actually, before I went on a team, um, before they had a team opening for me, they put me on. They were like, okay, you're deploying in two weeks and you're taking over. They had like an ad hoc split team. So Canadian soft had been running the Afghan special operations schoolhouse okay. out of Camp Moorhead, training the Afghan commandos, the Afghan special forces. Um, so Canadian soft had it and it was transitioning over to green beret. So the de- next deployment, it was going to be an ODA mission. A full SF team was going to go, but to patch the interim, um, They handed it off to like this former team sergeant. He put together like an ad hoc split team, so half of an ODA. So every specialty is represented because there's two of everything on a full team and needed an officer. So I showed up and they were like, Hey, this is Chuck. He's your new, and you're going. And he was like, Yep, I just got back from PESS, like the pre deployment. Here's the mission set, here's everything. And we, I mean, deployed really, really quick over to Camp Moorhead. And I had to spend a few months as like the advisor to the uh, the Afghan colonel in charge Mm -hmm. of the. Uh, the special operations schoolhouse. Um, and then we had each respective job special. And I was running, I mean, we had we had Slovak, civil affairs, psyops people. It was like a, a big advisory team to field all the different uh, segments of the schoolhouse. So we got to basically, I got like pretty much a preview of like an SF, at least training mission. It wasn't a combat mission. Um, although we did, you know, we lost some guys, but it was like V VBID and Kabul type stuff. It wasn't you know, ground combat. Um, so I got to do that, which is a, a great experience and just a total bonus. My team time hadn't even started yet because that's a finite clock on the officer side. Yeah. Um, came back and got assigned to a uh, ODA. Um, it was a mountain team, but third group did not place any emphasis on mountains. So they didn't care. I mean, my battalion commander was like, why am I getting like, and he's a phenomenal, human. if he called me, tomorrow it was like zombie apocalypse, Casper, I need you. Like, I'd be like, got it. I will be there. He's about to get his, uh, his star, I think. So, wow. um, coming off command of seventh group now, but one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. And he was like, Jason, why do I have like a con op for like mountain training? And I was like, we're a mountain team. is like, when was the last time this is used real world? It's like seventh group, 2007, like, uh, you know, this, this casa going down with these sensitive materials at 7,000 feet or whatever. And they relayed like the climbing teams and sent up like, ran pitches for this team to recover materials. It's like, okay, check it out. I have nothing in my chart that says I have to maintain this capability. He's like, you're going to Afghanistan if you want it's like, shoot, move, communicate, deploy, and kill people. And I was like, got it, sir. <laughs> so we, you know, I did the basic, we did the basic stuff to maintain certification as a mm-hmm. mountain team. But, um, you know, the focus is all just straight combats. And then we deployed um, 2015 uh, and that was a miracle trip because, in a lot of places in the country, you know, they knew the ROE then. It was under a mm-hmm. resolute support mission, uh, non combat operations. Mm. So, basically, the paradigm is that you take your commando battalion in, or like a company of uh, commandos with some Afghan special forces, you go to a hot area, take over an enemy compound, and you wait for 24 hours and let them come to you and kill as many people as you can. Uh, but in a lot of places in the country, like that ROE was well known. So, in most places, they would, um, cool. Americans are here. Everybody sits it out, waits 24, 36 hours. Americans leave and they're back to doing their thing. In Logar and Wardak, they would run to their deaths. Like it was, it was crazy. Um, so that's where my team was. We ended up, you know, we were running out of a shank. Um, Mm -hmm. so we had like a great trip, like every mission, um, they were just like coming out of the woodwork for like, you know, 36. Sometimes, you know, we get extended to like 50 hours in the ground. Um, in like other teams would send their new guys to our team to be like an attachment for a mission. So their guys could get some combat experience. So we were like really, really perfect spot with the best guys possible, uh, treated it like Vegas. You know, what happens in the three, six mission stays in the three, six mission, um, and got great experience for everybody. Um, and, you know, sadly by that time, like everybody, the writing's on the wall for Afghanistan. I came out of my 2010 trip I remember going into it as a newly commissioned West Point officer. And I remember having a conversation with my parents, like via cell phone, like right after you got in country, I'm like, Hey, how's it going over there? Cause the news looks a little sketchy. I was like, Oh yeah, it's good. Like we just need to surge. And it's, it's going to be, you know, I gave like the party going to me great. And I came off that deployment <laughs> and I talked to my mother recently. She's like, I remember this conversation vividly. We came off the deployment. I was like, Oh, it's all going to fall apart. The second, the second we leave, everybody knew that no administration wanted to bite the bullet. Um, And I had a company commander explain that to me, an SF company commander. It's like, you know what department's in charge of the overarching strategy here? And I was like, no, sir, I don't. And he was like, there isn't one. Mm -hmm. So he's like, everybody's kicking the can down the road. Everybody knows how it's going to end. So when my team got there, I got flew over a little early into Afghanistan, My team got there. This is not something you envision when you take the oath and you swear in in front of the flag. Um, And I was like, okay, there's nothing in Afghanistan worth dying for. Nobody wants to be the last American killed in Afghanistan. I was like, this is going to be about just like, we're going to have fun. Like, we're going to do combat. We're going to do the job best of our abilities, the missions. They want to stack bodies. We'll stack bodies, you know, like, um, and I want us to push it like right up to the edge of an American getting killed and stop at that threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the guidance I gave complete with like my 18 Foxy intelligence sergeant. Mm-hmm. He showed up and I was like, listen, man, I was like, you don't need to come to team meetings. I don't care like what you do for PT. It's like your only job is to meet these intelligence thresholds to get us out the door. I want you to plan, you know, a, a mission set progression throughout the deployment for geographic proximity near to far and for risk to us, least dangerous to most dangerous. And we're going to build a campaign plan. I want to do like an infiltration on Afghan special mission wing, you know, like mm-hmm. Afghan pilots flying their Hinds. Um I was like, that's that's a bucket list thing, getting into Wardak province, Tangy Valley, if we can get to extortion 17 site. Um, these, these are bucket list things and things that the previous team like wanted to do and like couldn't piece together or whatever. And I didn't see him for like three days. And you know, he's just running around liaising with the Intel people and everything, not in any team meeting. And he came back on like day four and he had everything laid out. He's like, okay, this town, this town, this is how we're gonna, you know, build it. And in terms of approval, we take this, they'll approve that. Um, had this great campaign plan. We like we executed it um, really well. So did they um, yeah, did the special mission wing infill, which was uh, that's terrifying. If you fly with Afghan pilots. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, are they flying on nods to, at the time? They fly nods, but it, and this is okay. So here's probably <laughs> the only silver lining to the fact that uh, Afghanistan has completely collapsed and fallen back to the Taliban. Is I I don't this I don't have to censor this, but the special mission wing is a 2015. They could only fly operationally like two days a month, the top of loom cycle. Uh, pretty much you can see right, right. at night Like you don't need nods, full moon and needed Apaches dropping flares. as said the landing area, we did it anyway, just because America It's like, when are you going to get a chance to do this again? Right. Um, and it, it's pretty harrowing. Like the landing on that, that's like skipping a stone across the ground. Um, really hard landings incredibly hard landings just the birds scattered all over you know and guys running out um trying to get we're going we did that we did get within i think a kilometer and a half of the extortion one seven site um driving through the tangy like and it's it was creepy because you're seeing these abandoned fobs you know that guy's lost a lot of lives and limbs to, like established, maintained, and there's just like empty empty hesco barriers and old checkpoints and stuff um so yeah, we had a, uh, we had a really uh, incredible trip that time had dude get shot like top of the plate and he's got that plate signed now by every member of the team, Wow! like ammo resupplies, um, you know, medevacs. So you're getting after it. Yeah. Like equipment resupply. We need another armored plate, like put it on the bird, yeah. get it out here. Um, and again, to throw another plug for pilots, man, just the dust off pilots. Yeah. We flew, you know, there's one 60th too, but we had like, regular army dust off and they're crazy. <laughs> we had, I mean, we had Afghans. so it's not like an American bleeding out. We had uh, you know, when our commandos would get shot up, we had some KIA or some killed in action, um, some wounded. And then the Taliban were just obviously shooting indiscriminately. So civilians would get hit. Um and we would they we'd bring them to our position um and take them on the medevacs, And we had once we had a. Uh, So fun term, the the Dushka, right? The huge belt-fed heavy machine gun that could take down helicopters. It's one of two times I've ever seen my team sergeant scared. Mm. Uh, One was when we heard an American got hit and we both looked at each other and went, fuck. Um, And it turned out to be like we both ran and it turned out to be the guy got shot in the plate. It's fine. Um, And then this sniper dialed him in. And then uh, the second time, was a different objective and we just heard a dushka open up dushka the name of the weapons like dshka but in russian dushka means like sweetie like girlfriend so they call it the soldiers started calling it the dushka um, but it's scary like it can it can do some damage and we heard one of those open up and i saw my team sergeant just shout and at the time i didn't realize how significant it was and he was like dushka and like get down! And uh, anyway, it turned out that some Afghan commando gun truck had pulled up right next to our position and opened fire without like telling us. So it ended up being fine. Point is, a Dushka is extremely serious, um, and we had uh, you know the UAVs had uh, the drones that identified a uh, Dushka position. They pulled the netting off it and they were um, trying to take down a bird. So we, uh, you know, my JTAG, my Joint Terminal uh, mm-hmm. Air Controller. You know, he's like, Hey, we got a, a Dushka here. Like, this is the Air Force combat controller who are just masters of all things. They support the Air Force special operations. They're incredible. And they'll usually deploy like with a SEAL platoon or a special forces ODA. You have like one of them and they help run. Like we had a JTAC qualified guy and he would work with the combat controller, you know, and um, take, like, manage the aircraft during low traffic between gunfights and stuff. Uh, but the combat controller is just. A God, and they're, they're critical because it's also especially 2015's legal considerations, right? Mm. Like, you can get crucified for violating ROE and sending anything off the rails of a bird at that time. Mm. It didn't matter how many Gustav rockets you shot, it didn't matter how many mortar rounds you slung, if you shot, like, a hellfire, your neck was on the chopping block. For whatever reason, I still can't explain it, but it was a fact. And he was like, we had a Dutch girl, like, this position, like, show me the drone feed. I was like, legal? He's like, yes, hit it, you know? So they, um uh the apaches took that out and right then we had like a medevac and i i told the pilots i was like hey man like just you know we smoked the dushka like two minutes ago and there are no american casualties this is afghan civilians and afghan um you know commandos and they were like we're coming in hot and they flew through everything and everyone and put it down and got the casualties these are conventional army pilots um, just incredible incredible stuff and then the 160th guys too you know they they ran a infill for us um, we ended up getting extended it was one of the situations we can't exactly stroll out of there yeah. as planned um, so we ended up staying an extra night and uh came back and we've been on the ground like 50 hours and we came back and one of the guys on base was telling me he's like the entire time you guys were out there, those MH-47 Chinook helicopters were sitting hooked up to fuel with the engines idling wow. and the pilot standing by the entire time, wow. like just because we were out there and That's they cool. were ready to do whatever they needed to. So yeah, just tremendous. I think the, the aviation community as a whole, like every bit, the warriors that any any guy on the ground is.
0: Yeah. No, Jeez. And when you're over there and you're seeing all this and you're driving by those abandoned checkpoints and seeing those HESCO barriers and those bases and thinking about what guys sacrificed to to take those positions, hold those positions, and then see them abandoned, are, are you ever looking back at uh, the congressional testimony from guys with stars on their collars that are saying, we're making progress, all we need is a little more time, all we need is a little more money, all we need is like, and saying, you're painting this picture that might be a little different from what you're seeing on the ground and how did and if you did how did you feel about that?
1: I mean it it hurts. It it hurts, you know, even being 82nd like conventional infantry and being told that we've been running out of one district and suddenly battalion commander is a great guy, former unit guy, um, was like, hey, I want you driving up to this district and you're gonna link up there and set up a whole new base and start this over in this area. There's no Americans like Marsock, the Marine mm-hmm. Raiders were running um, some ops through there, but there was no standing US presence. So, um, also not a great area. So, you know, we do all the logistical nightmare of breaking down and loading up and driving out there, um, recocking, trying to get security and making progress. So, for instance, um, you know, we had uh, a really big uh, gunfight there, like pretty, pretty big gunfight where we just like, we're rolling into the town. We'd taken IEDs. We hadn't had any direct contact yet. And just, um, was it, we had, um, there was a, just a shady area in this road where it's like possible IED doesn't look ground disturbance, like something could be nothing. Take the trucks around it. And it was like a choke point. Mm-hmm. And I hopped out of my truck and ran around. And I was ground guiding these trucks through there, through this choke points, the friction point of the mission, trying to get the trucks across. First truck across goes up to the high ground, It's just a small hill. And as soon as the truck gets there, I just duff, you know, the 50 cal opens up and you just hear, you know, the world opening up and, um, you know, potentially like get the, get the guns over, like start back it up. start engaging. Um, and I was on the ground. So I just, you know, ran up the hill and, uh, the whole village was just like lighting up with muzzle flashes. And I was like running down the hill, like looking at the vehicles. And they were like mortars exploding and PK fire and just like this crazy, like, post-apocalyptic, like, World War II war movie, like, uh. soundscape, um, and ran down, and we had this really long, crazy, sustained uh, gunfight. So then the next day, the, um, the district governor, who had not had any tribal leaders or village leadership come to them for help, the next day they had 30-plus leaders of various tribes in the district lined up for a massive shura because they had seen just a taste of combat power. Like, okay, now they can do shit for us and ended up starting all these programs and the government was relevant again. Um, but then you have all the close calls and the IEDs and the gunfights and, uh, you know, miraculously don't lose anybody. Like trucks getting blown up, dudes getting purple hearts, but nobody dying miraculously. And my mission in life, I was like the next the next platoon to take over from us is not going to want for anything. They're not going to have to reinvent the wheel meticulous records on everything down to like, when you get here, like this, is the first thing you to do second thing, third thing, these power player. you put all that together. And then the next battalion is a different unit. Um, battalion commander gets out and gets here. And I was like, Oh yeah, we're not, we're not occupying this district. Okay. That's it. Break down, head home. Uh, wish we would have known that beforehand. And it was that going on, you know, over and over and over at hundreds of places throughout the country for 20 years while replacing the overall commander, um, you know, back to back to back. So, yeah. And it was, I got to, uh, I got to West point in the book, um, is it counterinsurgency by David DeLula, mm-hmm. you short book. Very simple. And I had a counterinsurgency course with a special forces instructor who great, great human being um, really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. Had us read that. And he was like, we're not doing any of this. Mm -hmm. Like this is, I guess it's one of the books that um, general Petraeus referenced heavily for creating the army counterinsurgency manual. Um, One of his cornerstones, but it's straight up like you Invade, you have limited time, push your military forces to border control. And then police are the focus for everything inside the borders. But if there's a porous border with a friendly nation, the insurgents can operate out of, you will never win. Like you do border control immediately. And like <laughs> we didn't do that in Tora Bora 01, yeah. a small swath of border with a company of rangers sitting a few hours flight time away. Like yeah. unit guys, parrot, like ground branch guys killing dudes, picking up an ICOM, hearing bin Laden's voice that Mm. close. Just crazy. And then, you know, fast forward, great that, you know, got bin Laden. It's a certainly historic mission in terms of like you look at like historic special operations mission. Like My opinion, the bin Laden raid, like that's up there with like the Sante raid. I mean, that is historically significant logistically. um, I know Mark Rowland downplays it, but dude, a cross border, like that's really, really cool um, what they did. ideally, they, they wouldn't have had to do that 10 years after 9-11. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't want to get too bitter or cynical, but yeah, it, <laughs> but hurt, it, it hurts, yeah, Jack. It, it hurt. hurts my heart. I think it hurts everybody's heart. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I would have been fine to tune out the withdrawal, except the fact that my, you know, I still had an interpreter over there who needed help. So I got roped into that whole vet network and spent two hours where like, that was the Literally, like I told you about that 50 hour mission, the second time I stayed awake 50 hours uh, after the next time after that was literally trying to help the families like LinkedIn with other vets and everybody's guys are reporting where the checkpoints are and you're trying to put together this coherent picture with like, you've got four different messaging apps open, you're open on your computer screen, it's two in the morning, you're trying to tell him where he can take his one year old kid and his other two kids and his wife and how to get around these checkpoints and try to make it to the airport. Um, Yeah, yeah, it sucked. Um, it sucked, it hurts, you know. Uh I I think it there's no way you're getting off emotionally easy. The the vets I've talked to that are the coolest about it are the ones who've never been to Afghanistan. Um nothing against them, but it's just easier to maintain an emotional detachment if you don't know the motherfuckers who are, you know, cool, I moved out of this location and the next day the Taliban kicked open the door and tossed everything looking for me. Um, you know, and then yeah, it, it was rough. And then you've got guys in these vet chats who are like, hey man, my NDS of so the Afghan intelligence service, my guy made it out yesterday, and the Taliban showed up the next night, um, decapitated his um, you know, his brother, like left the message, like still looking for this dude, had the address, and then you start seeing these news articles where US government handed over information to the Taliban, you know, like special immigrant visa package with addresses and names. Um it's insane. Yeah, it it's it's horrendous. Yeah,
0: it gives me a lot of uh fuel for the novels. Um uh, very therapeutic to write. Sometimes people ask, you know, how and they're bad guys you have senior military leaders or politicians as bad guys <laughs> very easily um yeah very therapeutic keeps me out of jail and yeah right uh, so when do you start So you've seen a lot of combat i mean even with five years in the middle of the war at west point and prep school you have seen a ton of combat at this point from conventional side special operations side task force
1: side like you you were in it and uh yeah i i would contest that real quick i i saw a little bit of combat and I know lots of guys, including guys I worked with that just, you know, like Kyle and have forgotten more combat than I've ever been to. Like I did, I did six deployments, five combat deployments. Like I said, my team Sergeant had That's 15, 16. Yeah. I mean, everything's and then relative went back of course, over but, uh... as a contractor. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think the, the, what I can say is I worked with like true, true pipe hitting savages that gave me a lot of inspiration, even just from swapping stories yeah. and getting an understanding of like how things go down that that helps a lot with writing yeah for sure i
0: mean being very very humble about it but um you've you, you've been there you've done the job um and then when do you start to notice that uh that it's starting to affect affect you um from a post traumatic stress standpoint or it's starting to affect your life or those around you or uh there's some things that you might need to might need to deal with on that front
1: I'm trying to imply that i have post-traumatic stress <laughs> yeah i was i was super fucked up um and i know I think not everybody gets affected equally. I had, um, so at West point I started, like, I went into a spiraling, wow. spiraling depression, uh, massive sleep issues. Um, and I was trying to fill that hole with like, I started doing marathons and then that was enough to so ultra marathons. And, um, then skydiving, I skydived, started skydiving on my own dime in the prep school. Um, got on a skydiving team at West Point, which is a big deal because I don't know if you remember college, but you don't have any money. Yeah. And that that's really expensive. Wind tunnel time and the jumps, and the lift tickets and the gear. So it was like, that's the redeeming thing about West Point for me is it was like adrenaline hit, adrenaline hit, adrenaline hit. Wow. You, you know, You're on the skydiving team. And then I got done with jump 235 or whatever, uh, like my sophomore year, I think. And I remember touching down and there was no adrenal rush. There was no endorphins. Wow. I was like, fuck. So then I got into base jumping and like secret, like I went out and did a course one summer uh, in Idaho off a legal bridge. And then I came back and linked up with, you know, I'm from Kentucky. So I linked up with the Kentucky and Cincinnati crews, then got back to school, linked up with the New York crew, um, which they went pretty hard in the paint. Um, like my, my mentors dead. Um, but they started going out to local objects, including like that, that big antenna you can see across the river from West Point. Um, keep an eye out. next time you go. Oh, well. And that was like my home drop zone. So I would like finish skydiving practice, sometimes drive to skydiving practice and then go out there, to catch a window of the winds at sunset. Um, then the weekends I was out there, I was jumping in, you know, the city and base jumping is, you know, that's skydiving is cocaine. Like base jumping is heroin. Like it's dark, it's dirty. It's highly illegal in America. So you're always like running for cops. You're like, so you're doing this um, while you're at West Point,
0: while you're a cadet. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's I was an extremely high functioning, like depressive and like anyway, adrenaline junkie like got me through stuff like I, that's how I tried to fill the hole. Do you realize, you realize that it's drink?
0: like might be an issue or are you like, this is just I'm just after it. Like, this is awesome. I'm training. I'm staying on the edge. Like, this is just me. Like, what are you thinking in your head right there?
1: I mean, it's it for me, it came down to like, cool. So you feel like shit and you're fantasizing about killing yourself a few hundred times an hour and then base jumping like rewards by, base all jumping, that by not
0: pulling or by other no, no 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 no
1: no my thing was i'd always i'd always fantasize about blowing my head off um the 454 revolver like ruger uh alaskan i don't know why it just you know you get in these destructive i got in these destructive head cycles and i was like well this is not good um but then base jumping like when you're standing with like the toes of your boots 360 feet over the earth and you get a single parachute system on your back. And the margin of error is seconds. If you do everything right. Um, And then any type of uh, parachute delay, pilot shoot hesitation, you know, pin hang up. And I had these things happen. Um, But when you're standing there, like all that shit's gone, you're purely in the moment. It's horrifying Zen, just adrenaline coursing. And that was kind of the closest I had to like the experience of combat, I guess. So I kept seeking that experience. Um, down to like, I almost, my first building was an apartment building in uh, New York city and I had gotten, so base rig is similar to Scott, scouting We have a pin through a closing loop. and, uh, except there's two pins on most base rigs. So I bought this brand new equipment, right? I put all my money into this, it's like I, Roth IRA can wait, got two base rigs. So I could just do jumps back to back, and then pack during daylight hours. And anyway, my mentor, um, a guy named Jerry, who's like a, I mean, he was a hardcore, like Coke and hookers guy working, like he lived in Spanish Harlem. He was really gangster, loved and hated by the bass community. Um, he kept telling me, he's like, you need to take out these closing loops, replace them with um, like Dacron, like a slicker material and make them way looser. And I look back at the instructor or the, I'm sorry, the uh, manufacturer recommendations. Like, no, nope, they say exactly this length, exactly this material. Uh, you occupy your time with hookers in my head. I'm like, you occupy your time with hookers and blow. Like, I think I'm going to side with the people who do this professionally. So first building, um, I, so it was a go and throw, right? Or no, I think it was a three second delay, uh, like a 400 foot building. So I had, you know, you prep your pilot shoot in the bridle. So you basically jump, you do like a three second delay, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 pitch. Um, My pilot shoot inflated. It reached line extension. You're free falling over electrified uh, tracks, like electrified uh, train tracks. It
0: seems like a very bad um, idea, by the way, for, for anyone listening.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Like like a lot of things I've told you about over this uh, podcast, my judgment questionable. So anyway, it just didn't pull. And at the time I was like, okay, I'm going to hold a stable body position because your perception of time, especially when you're new in base, I'm just like combat, you know, you're like, Hey, we're reaching the gunfight for like five minutes or 45 minutes. And you're like checking your watch and piecing together the recording. To try to for the like even the after action review. So there's like a time distortion. So I was holding this body position. I was like, I'm getting pretty fucking low. Finally it pulled and I had literally enough time to like rip a rip a quick 180 into this little park and touch down. And I was like, that was not much time under canopy. And um, my mentor jumped after me and he was like you just had the biggest pilot shoot hang up. This is after we like stuff shit in the car and you drive off like you're leaving a bank heist. Um but he was like you just had the biggest like pilot shoot and toe malfunction. Um, I saw it catch air, saw you falling, saw it not pulling, turned to the guy, the other guy who was with him at the top of the building and said, he's going in and had time to say it before your parachute opened. Wow. Um, and then we went back to his apartment packed and then we did the world fair tower, you know, um, but that I didn't free fall it. It's a, we did a pilot shoot assist. It's low enough. So he held my bridle and it's one of those things that slips out of his hand. By then I know I'm dead, you know, because that's a super, you can't free fall that um, or not with the equipment I had at the time. And then we just did it to do it. And then, uh, yeah, that's the way that was my West Point experience. Wow, Uh, It's hating life at school, not sleeping, you know, and then. Because of the combat from those first
0: two deployments or was it something else?
1: I think so. I mean, I'm generally a pretty high strung dude, but I, I think, yeah, I think I had some issues from like, Tasting the magic, and then going to the cesspool of you know people ratting each other out mm-hmm. and reporting their roommates for yeah. you know regulations violations and I, I didn't do great. Uh, also, my engagement was impl- imploded uh, around that time. So was anyone yeah, ever like, a...
0: "Hey, bro, you uh, want to take a breath for a second Or what?
1: no, nobody knew. Nobody knew I jumped. I had one guy, another mutual friend of uh, me and Kyle's, who's was my West Point roommate. He had an envelope that he would open if I didn't come back from the jump. Wow. Um, that was like instructions, the antenna, I will be, you know, body will be inside the fence, like whatever, whatever. Um, that he never had to open, but yeah, I would, I would come back from these jumps and I would, I had like a word document on my computer and I would detail the jumps It started like a skydiving logbook. like this parish, this pilot shoot, this type of equipment, this delay, here's what was good. Here's what was bad. Here's what I need to work on. And then it just, I would come back and it'd be like two in the morning or whatever. And I would just write these longer passages and then like pontificating on the meaninglessness of life and written form and everything. And I'd be like, man, this shit really calms me down. And I, I'd, I'd have these multi-page passages. Um, and I was like, this feels better. Like this lifts, you know, um, some of the pressure. And then, uh, I was like, man, I, I can't jump that often because, you know, school and the winds and stuff. So what if I tried fiction? So I came up with this David Rivers character and just sat down at my computer one day. Well, you're and at West wrote, I, yeah. I think it was junior year. And I wrote this scene where he infiltrates a house comes face to face with an armed man and kills him and walks away. And it's kind of like a cold-blooded murder type scene, um, which is now the first chapter of my first book. But like, I finished writing that scene and my pulse was jacked. I had adrenaline. I was like waiting for cops to burst through the door. And that's when I was like, holy shit, like I can get an adrenaline rush from like writing like an action set piece or something like without climbing and flinging myself off that antenna or whatever, um, which I kept doing anyway. But then I wrote, and I, that's the whole part of my first book was like this suicidal depressed r- Ranger Regiment private who went to West Point and then uh, was base jumping and like the mentor described is really like Jerry. Um, and then instead of commissioning, um, you know, gets medically gets Mm -hmm. deemed medically non-commissionable and ends out and conducts this murder and then you know crosses paths with basically like a mercenary element um and just falls into this life of working as a mercenary for like a transnational criminal syndicate so that became my whole first series but that was the the genesis basically and it's it's been working for me ever since like it's i i feel like writing is therapy and that's why i started and it was kind of like started as a survival thing and now it's just what i love doing all day
0: now, did you keep jumping and doing base jumping while you're at like SFQ course and while you're a uh no that so
1: no, I met my wife senior year of West Point, still kept jumping. Um, but then I calmed down a lot after meeting her. We're about to have next month is our 10-year anniversary. So I've I've had a lot of time as like just a normal dude, yeah. relatively. Um but yeah, I calmed down a lot and then I kept skydiving and base jumping through 82nd time. And I retired before special forces selection
0: from base jumping, because
1: jump. from base jumping and skydiving, actually because I had a friend who went to range regiment as a platoon leader. And before his first deployment as a range regiment platoon leader. And he was in 82nd mm. with me. He was skydiving civilian side for fun and had an injury immediately went to staff, do not pesco, no combat. Mm-hmm. Um, from that point on, and I was like, that's not gonna happen to me. And especially like we were talking about the timelines being so tight. I was like, I'm not getting injured. Right. Um, so I retired and I was in a position then with my wife where I was like in a much better place and could retire. But then you I kept writing. Then you
0: get back into it, you're you're back in Afghanistan, you're doing the job. And uh is there, are you having any other uh any any other indicators that uh that you might have to deal with some issues later while you're doing that that time in Afghanistan, leading uh your SF team?
1: Yeah, I had um, so everything's fine when you're on a job. Like that's when you, you know, it. when you're in combat, there's no issues. Yeah, it's when you come back, that's when shit gets hard. Um, yeah, I had a lot of insomnia issues, never any nightmares, never any flashbacks, never saw anything that I was, you know, you see horrific shit, but you're like, this is the job, like this is what happens. Um But yeah, I would have physiologically, I would just burst awake at two in the morning or just not be able to sleep, Um, self-medicated with alcohol a lot, uh, which works well for me. Like I'm a very happy drinker. It's, I'm fun dad, you know, it's like not, it's not invasive beyond like this probably isn't good for long-term marital stability. Like I don't want the wife getting concerned. Um, But yeah, mostly the, the sleep issues are really intense, but that I think, everything comes unglued. If you're not getting sleep, right? Like that throws off all your, all your hormones, all your emotional stability. And you get to the point I would have, especially after I got out of the army where I would have such rough patches of sleep, where I'd be lucky to get a few hours a night, like even with alcohol that like, I would ask my wife to drive when we went places.
0: You're just so tired her, to drive?
1: Yeah. You literally like, I shouldn't be operating a motor vehicle just from sleep debt. Um, and I tried a bunch after I got out, I think is when it hit me the worst. Uh, and I tried a bunch of different therapies and everything. Um, what year did you get out? I went on terminal leave November, 2016.
0: So you got out before? Which is when I mark hit. Or? Uh,
1: yeah, I would have had to do another nine years because the West Point stuff doesn't count nor should it. Oh, um, interesting. I would have had to do another nine years, but my deal with my wife, she never liked the military. She never adapted. Um And I I told her like, you support me through SF team time and I will get out. I'll move wherever you want. I can write from anywhere. Um, so terminally, yeah, November, 2016, the day I like took off the uniform, like that night when I hit like publish on like Amazon, like self-publishing my first book as a nobody. And, uh, then yeah, January, 2017 was my official ETS, but I was on leave pretty much that whole time. So and you haven't yeah after that
0: yeah. oh sorry No, I was gonna say are you having some some issues during during that time and I mean obviously you're exploring them in the pages of your, of your novels and it's working as as therapy but you're not sleeping and you know a lot of guys obviously come back and have the you know the ambient on vampire hours overseas and then you throw a little uh yep. TBI in there maybe some post-traumatic stress sure. in there some marital problems in there some alcohol problems in there and it becomes this you know caustic cocktail um and they start you yep. to deal with each and every one of those things and it becomes overwhelming uh and then they're not on the job like you said they're they're home yeah uh, and don't haven't found that next mission and found the next passion yet yep um so it's a yeah it's a, and a lot of guys have some serious issues um did they did they start getting worse for you after after you got out and before you and how long was it before you were like hey i need to start some sort of a treatment here
1: i started treatment um pretty much right when i left oh, the wow. only thing i asked the va for was like you have anything going to help me sleep? And they gave me, I think trazodone and I took trazodone. it one night and just, yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's a happy household drug uh, to have around the medicine cabinet. And I think I took it like one night and it was just, I felt like I got all the body. Like I couldn't sleep, couldn't think, which normally I'll just get a glass of bourbon and right. There were mm. um, a few glasses of bourbon and right. And that was like, I couldn't think I couldn't function. And I, I think I might've done it one or two nights and I started feeling depressed Threw the bottle away, went back to bourbon, and then I started trying, um, you know, EMDR, cognitive processing therapy, like one thing, another thing. Um, Are those did the, the S- is that the eye movement stuff
0: and like the yes. gyro stuff and the, like there's, yep, and the brain, is that the, yeah, the eye, what is the brain treatment stuff where you actually get zapped?
1: I haven't gotten that. The medical, uh, was it metal something. resonance therapy? Yeah, so like Mark that. Owen's done it. Like that, that got me curious. That sounds, and you know, I've heard, I know Tom Satterley's is a mm-hmm. unit guy. I don't know him, but. He wrote a book called All Secure, which is like a deep dive into yeah. PTSD and his whole journey. Um, and he works actively as his like life's purpose now is like helping vets. And he credited that. There's also a guy um, named Escaping Me, but a dev guy who wrote a book called Mob Six, mm, um, yeah. which I also read. And interestingly enough, those are two tier one top trade career NCOs during peak wartime. Both books open, and they're both good good books. Both books open. With them with like a gun in their mouth or to their head. Mm-hmm. And both books end with them talking about that magnetic resonance therapy as helping them. Um, so I haven't tried that. It's, it's pretty pricey. Um, I did the EMDR, that cognitive processing therapy, and then I would just get angry. Like no, none of it worked. No, I even did the stellate ganglion block for a while, which is a temporary relief. That's like put a needle in your neck. Yeah, what is that they about? inject what? something. That's what Dakota Myers does, uh, which I think is how I found out about it. Um, it's like
0: a blocker of some sort, or is it open things up or what they
1: is- inject, they inject some medicine into like a nerve bundle in your neck. And it's somehow linked to um, like the fight or flight instinct. Uh-huh. And you can literally get that. And they, they insert it with an x-ray. And then for me, they would pull it out and I would be so calm, like no muscle tendron, and I would sleep great. Um, but it was a finite shelf life on how long it works. So I went in for like repeated treatments and stuff um, in adventures, like this is, it's a quick, it was a quick fix for me. So it's not addressing root
0: causes as, uh, as they yeah, say. Yeah. I
1: think everybody has different experiences, but mm. then, uh, what I tried to I kind of like January, my flight, or flight. Yeah. Well, uh, you need it. I live between a Trader Joe's and a whole foods. Like I'm not exactly, uh, in a high crime area. Um, this is like one of the seven I mean, carry North Carolina. It's like the town's baptized in soy milk. It's super yuppie. Um, how many
0: times did you do that any, in, the,
1: in the neck? How how long did you do that for? Oh, probably. I've probably done, I don't know, 10 or 12 rounds of it. Wow. How long between treatments? Uh, I would go a few months between okay. a couple months between.
0: And then when it started getting that bad for again, you'd go back and get another one. Is that how that? Yep. Right? Wow.
1: Yeah. Um, and you know, VA paid for it. I've had good experience with the VA, but then when it was working and I just happened to meet a dude, um, just, I'd met him like once before and just, Hey, we're doing like a bourbon tasting, come over to the house. And he came over and just noticed this like bruise on my neck. Mm. And this, this guy's a doctor. And he's like, what is that? And I was like, Oh, and I was explaining like the SGB shit to him. And he was like, Oh dude, you need to go down to Charleston. You can look up with my buddy. He works this clinic. You're doing ketamine. And I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, I had no idea. And not, not, me you're not messing this.
0: around when you're doing some ketamine. Like that's some
1: serious stuff. It's so it's, It's pretty awesome. Um, It's really clean. The dose they give you, it's a significant dose. Like you go off to the spirit world. I see like crazy colors and like you're in like soaring through this three-dimensional like starscape for me. What
0: what are they trying to do with that? Like when when you walked in there, when you heard about it, what was the... Uh, what was the draw? Was it like, Hey, this is going to help me explore some things that I'm dealing no, with. or no, no, was no. it Like, Hey, this is going to cure me or this is going to like, what is, what are you uh, going there? What outcome are you looking for? And what are they hoping that you can get out of it?
1: So the draw for me was like, I tried everything. Yeah. And at that point, my sleep was still shit. Um, I was doing awful. Like I was still writing. Uh, but that was like the only good thing I could say, you know, other than that, I was not, not in a great place just you know just sucking physiologically you're just sucking every day you, it feels like you got hit in the head with a frying pan because you're so sleep deprived um and then alcohol is the only thing that helps like better than anything any other treatment for me personally i'm um, not recommending that but at that point the doctor was like trying to explain to me like, nobody really understands how this works but there's theories on this there's and that. and i was like doc you can play jazz i don't give a shit like stick needles in my eye whatever jazz have fun cuz you're like at the, I, you're
0: at the end of a rope at this point is that why
1: you're gonna, yeah yeah i mean it's just the the alternative is either to try this or just resign yourself to like i'm going to feel like shit the rest of my life um so you're not and, thinking
0: about taking your own life you're just feeling horrible
1: right right yeah at that time for sure um and it's one of the things like cool i can fake the funk with my family and like a good day is when they think i'm fine mm. but that's not how i want to live my life yeah. it's not how i want to raise my kids and i think for me, especially like the kids, it was a big kick in the ass at the time. I just had one daughter. Um, but it's one of those things where like kids pick up on everything, oh, yeah. right? And I, I can tell you what my dad taught me, and I can tell you what I learned from my dad. Mm. And he taught me, like, you know, express yourself, like, be, you know, be a good person, like, whatever. Yeah, you, know, you can talk to me about anything. And what I, you know, learned from him was, like, drink your feelings, be stoic. You know, mm-hmm. you don't like pretty much be the strong name for your family. And he didn't teach me any of that. But that's what I saw. You know, like mm-hmm. I saw like this guy never complains. This guy never. So I was very um, aware of my I didn't want my daughter seeing yeah. me suboptimal and not being as present as I could be um, and just forcing like tamping everything down yeah. because I didn't want her growing up like that and thinking that was the way it should be. So I was trying to lead by example, try everything, and this is like kind of the last option before, I guess, short of that, uh, magnetic therapy. I don't think I'd heard of at the time. So anyway, yeah, I did. Um, I stayed down there for in Charleston for five days, did five rounds of it. So they they typically, and there's ketamine clinics everywhere now. The science isn't well understood. Is it like a, is as yeah. a psychedelic
0: in these kind of doses, or how does that? What is it doing?
1: Yeah, so it's it's the drug is a surgical anesthetic is what it's created for. But now there's um, a lot of different applications uh, within clinical use, one of which is for treatment of like depression, addiction, um, post-traumatic stress. And uh, I know that I did this five days and, you know, went, did like one hour sessions. So you go off the spirit world for an hour and then you come out, but within like 20 minutes, it's out of your blood. Really? Like, you can drive. So you're leaving. Yeah, you leave yeah, the it's, clinic, you go to the hotel. It's really clean. Yeah. they like, sit here as long as you want. And yeah, I would wait or sit in my car and wait till I was like, okay, I'm good. And it's cleans out of your system pretty quickly. But in actually after I left, I didn't notice a huge difference for a while. And then it was like, everything lifted. It was just like a cognitive reset, all that physiological, like muscle tension and sleep issues and everything just kind of uh, went away. And now I go in, I get it every three to four months. Okay. And like during the Afghanistan withdrawal, shit got out of hand. And I just had gone five months without it. And I could just feel the walls closing in. And I was like, check my calendar. I was like, oh man, I haven't gotten that in a while. Got one more and I was fine. Like that day. No
0: kidding. He's so, going for one. That So the first time was five treatments uh, over a week-long yeah, period. It, it, it's
1: going to vary by doctor. But yeah, the, the guy I went to, um, he did five days in a row. And then after that was like basically coming for maintenance. Now there's different doctors in different ways. And I talked about this quite unintentionally. You think Kyle is a, a huge tough guy and he is, but. You know, I I went on to his podcast. He's like Barbara Walters. Yeah. Like he gets you to open up, you know, I am like crying, like, oh Kyle, it's so beautiful. Uh, but I talked about it just inadvertently. Yeah. I don't even know how we ended up talking about it. But anyway, after I did that podcast, I had people with PTSD, veteran and non-veteran, another guy's like first responder, another guy was like lifelong, you know, just depress- Just depression. Mm-hmm. Um And they had like heard the podcast, tried it. And were like, this has turned my whole life around. Like I, this pulled me out of like a really dark place. So I think for anybody who is tried or is frustrated by lack of options, it's it's definitely worth trying. There's ketamine clinics popping up everywhere that will do it with like a PTSD diagnosis or a depression diagnosis. Um, And it's definitely worth trying. I've heard a lot of success stories and the doctors told me a lot of stories of, you know, um, parents whose kids, like they walked in and found their kid killed themselves stuff like that where they're dealing with some kind of trauma um and come out of that with like new perspective kind of a reset so it's i think it's worth trying interesting if you know you're searching for options for anybody listening yeah but what is it so the the first time you went there was each one of those five
0: days uh, a different experience when you when you got the yeah i mean
1: yeah it's all i mean you trip balls jack you trip balls um but <laughs> yeah every time down different. just in case or like you just no no you um you just put on like an eye mask uh noise canceling headphones with just i don't know acid junkie music like instrumental like um musical score type mm-hmm. stuff and then uh yeah you just relax drift off into it and then you see what you see you go where you go sometimes it's like coherent you have realization. sometimes it's just like crazy psychedelic and then you come out of it but that whatever it does in the in your brain works usually very shortly thereafter for me the first time that first five days it took a while and then I just felt it um and now I feel same day I come out of the trip and it's like I feel different relaxed and it lasts
0: for months interesting yep and was that helping you deal with any specific uh uh incident in particular or was it just Um, this, um, buildup over time of all these different stressors and whatever else was, um, maybe your body beginning, but needing that adrenaline rush for whatever, whatever reason from all, from base jumping and all the rest of it. Um, was was it, was helping you deal with something specific or was it just, uh, like all this buildup that it's helping you now take a breath and reset and move forward, um, more, more relaxed and able to get sleep?
1: Yeah. I don't think there's anything specific like my best guess would be build up um and if i'm trying to pick incidents you know like the the toughest thing and i know everybody's seen is like the dead civilians right like the civilians that drive over that IED that was meant for you or get shot up by the taliban um you know especially like kids like that shit's tough and i say that because i i know there were a few times like where i was doing other types of therapy where like that came out Mm. you know like the pile of dead kids, the you know, the, the civilians pretty much because it's all fun and games when it's you and the bad guys or you and the enemy, however you want to phrase it. You know, I think a lot of the guys we that I fought were running to the sound of the guns, like we were, you know, like you had that calling, like cool, especially in Afghanistan, you have nothing else to do. I would pick up an AK and run to whoever, you know, cool, cool bunch of Americans dressed up like RoboCop. I'm in. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's all fun and games and it's that level playing people like the civilians, like that hurts, you know. So if I had to pick something, yeah, I would say like the instances of civilians are the most painful. But um, yeah, I can't point to anything specific. I think it's just war and probably I'm just like a high strung dude. I've got multiple friends who are like coke users that have separately told me like you can never do cocaine because you're way too high strung <laughs> as is. And like, okay, I will not ever try. I, I wouldn't have tried it anyway, but yeah. Um, all good, Oh
0: man. And then
1: where do, when people reach out
0: to you, knowing that you're a veteran and, um, you know, you've gone through some of these issues when guys reach out to you, where do you, where do you point them or what do you tell them? If someone's saying, saying, Hey, I'm having these similar issues to you, or I'm dealing with some, maybe some TBI or some post-traumatic stress and don't really know what to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm drinking too much. I'm on this ambient, my marriage is falling apart, yeah. whatever. But what do you, where do you point them? Or how do you, uh, how do you deal with people that reach out to you like that?
1: Yeah, so I pretty much um like I don't have a script. Like I answer everybody, I answer every reader, like I answer hate mail individually. But yeah, like when people reach out with trauma, and I got that even before Kyle Lance by people just like my first series is drenched in PTSD. It's basically you can tell like this cat was working through his issues. Yeah. Um very PTSD without me intending that, it's just how everything came out. Um, so I heard a lot of people like childhood abuse or vets and everything. Um and I just respond to everybody, like, individually, like, based on what they told me. And then I I kind of tell them, like, it's totally okay. Like, glad you're talking about it. I've got a woman just recently that's, like, pouring out stuff she's never told anybody. Um, and said, I'm sorry for bothering you. It's like, no, like, you can always vent. To- I get vets and people all the time. And, like, the problem is when you don't talk about it. Like, please, like, vent. Like, let's talk about it. Um, but I I pretty much, I, I think the one takeaway is, like, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution. Mm. If there was, it would be super easy and the VA would understand it, but we shit! like have a look at the disability paperwork, you know, it's like PTSD slash TBI slash alcohol slash insomnia is like one rating. Yeah. Like they can't figure that out. Yeah. Nobody understands the micro TBI of like all the door charges, all the firing machine guns or rockets from a confined space, you know, but those have like certain G forces, you know, there's a former seal, uh, Dr. Parsley who like mm-hmm. talks about this at length, you know, and he studies this stuff, um, yeah, you're enduring like these G-forces, pretty significant, you know, the jumps where you black out on the drop zone. Um, uh, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution. And I know from talking to people who have success stories, like, I don't think I've heard the same two ways. Like this guy or, you know, this woman has a therapy dog combined with like a certain medication and that's... Mm. It's good as she's going to do, like lifetime first responder, career first responder, seen horrible stuff, natural disasters. Um, other guys do. Um, I've got I've heard people who like just going in and talking to a therapist at a Mogadishu vet who told me, um, he was he was in with the Rangers for Battle Mogadishu and um, was drinking like a f- it's a night, yeah. He would go to the class six every week, pick up his case, and that would last in the week, Jeez. and anyway. So that battle was in 93. And he recently told me, um, because he like pulled me out of a party. This is pre 2020 ketamine. He, he saw I was wearing like an SF ring. And he's like, Oh, what group were you in? I was like, Oh, third, What were you in? He's like, Oh, it's 375. I was like, I was in 375. Like, you just become best friends. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, when were you in? And um, he said, Years that included Mogadishu. And I was like, Oh, shit. you go, what company were you in? He's like, Yeah, I was, you know, Bravo Company, first QRF. And then like we were talking for a bit and then like later he was like, Hey man, can I talk to you outside? And he's like, pull me aside. like, I can see you're fucked up. And I was like, yeah, yeah. You're a good. Good assessment. So anyway, for work for him was like, he's like, I found a really good therapist that I could go in and talk to, um, you know, once a week. And now I can sleep five nights a week on average. And that's for decades after, you know, um, some people like do well with the talking therapy where you just, Hey, there's no EMDR flappy, vibrating paddles, mm-hmm. which works for some mm-hmm. people, you know, other people like me, try ketamine and it, something clicks, yeah. um, Dakota Meyer, as he said, like he swears by, um, the stellate ganglion box SGB. Um, and while other, especially the tier one guys, you get that magnetic, that MRT, mm-hmm. uh, therapy or like that turn my life around, save right. my marriage, save my life. So I think it's a matter of trying different things and finding what works for like you as an individual. Yeah. I wish there was an easy answer. I, I just don't think there is, oh, man. or if there is, we haven't found it yet. Yeah. And uh, there's some, some
0: universities are doing research into this sort of thing, right? does John Hopkins have? John like, Hopkins. You know, yeah. yeah. They have a
1: psychedelic center. You can That's go on wild. Spotify. They've got, they've got a four hour playlist and they lay you down on the couch and administer uh, psilocybin, like the mushroom right. drug, like the magic mushroom drug and lay you on a couch and play this four hour soundtrack that you can, you can play. If you want to go in for your own, you know, ketamine treatment or, Recreational mushrooms. I and are don't they know. studying you as part uh, of this?
0: Is this because it's a university? Yeah, but
1: they've, they've had massive. They're, they're working with uh, uh, MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin. <laughs> and I'm not sure if there's anything else, but they're having like massive gains, wow. like 30-year hardcore addicts and people that have had multiple suicide attempts wow. uh, turning around like in a clinical setting. And they're documenting all this and it'll all be fielded to the greater medical community. Uh, which regrettably would probably be too late to save you know a lot of people like every day mm-hmm. the, the list of suicides builds um but i, I think in the meantime these matter of survival like it's it's incumbent upon every individual to like try different things and see what works for them like that's what we owe our families and all the people who didn't come back from overseas and all the people who came back and then killed themselves because they didn't you know they couldn't deal with their their own demons and um yeah it hurts i mean that's another thing that hurts the most the suicides you yeah. know when you Guy's been to hell and back multiple times, decorated war hero, and then never shows any weakness. And then uh, one day punches his own ticket. Like, And you're like, like I never, I had a guy on my team right before I left, um, or actually right after I left the team. I was getting ready to, I was worried about my first book and, you know, I was getting out of the army um, and publishing a book literally about suicidal depression, yeah. and post-traumatic stress, whether I knew it at the time or not. And like, found out this guy in my team who's just like me, like the closest equivalent to me in terms of like interests, age, like where we're from, um, hero of the human being, valor awards, saved a lot of lives in a green on blue, was like the guy who stopped it, um, you know. And I found out about that and I just, that kind of hit me. And I was like, dude, I drank with this guy. He's been over to my house. Our wives know each other. Like, we could tell each other anything. And I just never talked about my own issues, just never came up. And if he had been around a month later and like read that book, not dedicated to him, like he, would he have reached out? Would he have talked to me about it? Would that have helped? I mean, who knows, but that's where I was kind of like, okay, fuck it. I'm, I never again, like keeping quiet about anything. If somebody wants to know, I'll tell them like, if I can help somebody, I will. Um, because for a long time, you know, especially if you're trying to get into special operations, um, you know, Robert Gates did that lift for the top secret clearance where it used to be, have you done any therapy whatsoever? Robert Gates, his secretary of defense, changed it to, you know, any therapy for outside of post-traumatic stress. Mm. You don't have to claim it, um, which I know was one of my concerns. And I was getting my top secret clearance. And I was like, I'm not telling them I'm fucking depressed. I didn't tell them I was arrested for base jumping. <laughs> yeah. um, I talked to a lawyer before I did that interview and they're like, uh, any arrests? And I was like, Yeah, there was one. I was in a park and, you know, um, me and a buddy like jumped off a waterfall, uh, you know, and she was like, were you thinking about ending your life? I was like, no, no, no." people do it all the time. You're just not supposed to get caught. Um, It's true. What I didn't say was like the waterfall was it's a 205 foot platform. And I'd been training all summer to do this as a free fall, like a go and throw with like a super like toxic 46 pilot shoe, which is like the grand Pumba of low altitude free fall pilot shoes at the time. And I've been working down my free fall altitudes and then I did it and then we get arrested. And then there's an officer at West Point who like intervened to save me. Wow. Um, but you know, I literally glossed over that. I certainly wasn't gonna admit to anything else. And now, like thanks to Robert Gates, that's been lifted. But I know even when I submitted my um my SF resume, right, to get into selection, you have to do resume, what are your interests, whatever? And I was like, writing. And he was like, "Take that shit off. Um, <laughs> do not ever tell anybody yeah. you write. Like the community is very memoir sensitive, mm. and just put a lid on that until you get out." I was like, Got it. I want to ask you about writing. You have a lot of books out there. I, th- how many are there? Like eleven, twelve? What do you, what do you, what do you have? You have a ton. I'm working on sixteen Jeez. now. 15's in editing. I'm working on sixteen now. That is wild. And so, when did the first one come out? Uh, November 2016. November 26. You've been busy. It was just. Yeah, yeah, I I do pretty quick turns now. I first book was on a wing and a prayer, and I was like, it was so stressful getting that ready for editing. I was like, I can't make a career of this. And I also realized the other two books I'd written were absolute shit Mm. and unworkable. I rewrote the first book from scratch, sent it off, and I was like, never again. And then I started studying craft and Robert McKee, and started a process like the screenwriting with the note cards, act Mm. sequences, scenes, and uh, made a process and worked through that over and over. And then just organically, you get you cycle through that quicker stuff that used to take me two weeks of messing with note cards. I can do in like four hours, oh, wow. um, just, just by getting the reps of committing to a process and then refining it as I go.
0: Nice. And what is that? We have a couple minutes left, but what is What is that process? Cause I'm going to take some notes on it, um, right here. So I can speed mine up.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I can, I can send you over screenshots, but yeah, I, I basically do a storyboard with like 15 plot beats and everything. Um, as per like save the cat writes novel by just yeah. Brody. She has a core chord structure and I do that just to get an idea of like, where do these events go? How do they fit into the story structure? Then I go down to color coded note cards of, and I build out the acts like five to six acts per book. What's the major turning point? Um, what's the value that shifts as per like Robert McKee in his book story. Once I have the acts, then I break down to a different color note card for sequences, which three to five scenes do Jeez. generally three to five sequences per act. And once I have those, I spread those apart and use a different color to do these scenes of that act. Wow.
0: That is and a process. basically
1: have... <laughs> it is a process. Yeah. And then I basically got the board, the note cards and you refine your, the idea in your head. And then I write the outline Oh wow! and then I write off that outline and it can be anywhere from 50 to 80% accurate by the time I'm done writing, but it gives me enough for roadmap to go off. of. Oh,
0: kidding. So for someone that just heard that you have uh, 16 books out there, where would you recommend that they start?
1: Um, for military thriller readers, just start with enemies of my country, uh, which is my current series. If you really like that, you can go back to the American Mercenary series, the first six books I ever wrote. The very few surviving cast members from that go on a new story arcs. So it's the same protagonist, but for conventional military thriller readers, start with the enemies of my country. And then if you want like nonviolent action or, and technical heist stuff, I've got the, the Spider Heist mm-hmm. series, which is like a very, very strong, like female protagonist that's trying to weed chauvinist out of my readership after getting a couple of disturbing emails. Um, yeah. And that's it. No kidding. And this is a standalone, right? Her Dark Silence? Her Dark Silence was ketamine inspired. Okay. That was like a standalone. I knew I'd never make any money off it. You can't afford to advertise one book as a standalone. But I was like, I, I did the ketamine stuff and I was like, oh, this would be a great thriller <laughs> plot. And then I created that. Well, now everybody's going to yes, go to this standalone. after our
0: conversation uh, and talk about what we just talked about. <laughs> I bet everyone's going to go grab this one. Um,
1: Kyle liked it. I have no idea. I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah. I was like, that's the last book of mine you should read. He's like, I read it in one yeah, sitting. So. That's,
0: oh, man. Dude, thank you so much for spending this time and uh, being so open about those uh, those struggles and treatments. Because I know there are so many people out there, not just veterans, but anyone dealing with with trauma, sure. that's out there searching yep. for something. You know, search for something that's going to help them, um, you know, get up the next day and keep moving forward. Um, and uh, to hear all those different things that you tried and the ones that you found that worked, I think that's going to be incredibly helpful to people. And I'm just uh, so uh, I don't know, appreciative that you share your story because you're, you're probably, you know, you are helping a ton of people who you'll never hear from. Um, that's just how today, today works with, uh, social channels and podcasts and, and all sure. the rest of it. So, um, man, thank you so much for, uh, for, for coming on and, and sharing that. And once again, for helping, uh, as many people as you do.
1: Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much for having me. It's great talking Absolutely. to you.
0: I we meet up in person one of these days soon.
1: Absolutely. Awesome, man. You take care a beer. Ah, all right. I'm Thanks, in. Jack.
0: Take care. <laughs> Navy Federal Credit Union. The name would suggest that it is just for members of the Navy, but that's not true. It is open to all members of the military, regardless of branch, veterans, and... Their families. So go to NavyFederal.org, check them out. Federally insured by NCUA. They have uh, certainly financed a few of my motorcycles over the years. I've been a member since 1996. So uh, car loans, home loans, motorcycle loans, whatever it might be, be sure to check them out. And if you're just getting started and need some help investing, they can help you there too. So be sure and check out NavyFederal.org. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of the Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash Danger Close and use code DangerClose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Raffle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. All right, let's talk about 10,000.cc. So 10,000, awesome company. If you have tried their interval shorts or their tactical shorts, which these are right here, you know that you are not going back to anything else. These things are awesome. And uh, I got a pair of pants from them recently too. And man, amazing, amazing. Um, I've worn a lot of shorts over the years, obviously being a West Coast SEAL at Team 5 when I started out. So that was kind of the the thing. Um, But I have worn a lot of shorts and these ones, hands down, the best. I mean, that's just how it goes. Uh, They were tested by over 50 special operations members in their testing phase. So it makes sense that they're awesome, but uh, definitely try these out. Go to 10,000.cc, uh, follow them on Instagram. Same thing, 10,000.cc on Instagram, uh, but go to the website, check it out. Super easy to order. Uh, there's not crazy amount of different options. So, uh, and then there's packages on there as well. I mean, they just do a fantastic job in all that they do. Free shipping, free returns. Uh, go to ten thousand dot cc slash danger close 15 to receive 15% off your purchase. That's 10,000.cc dot cc slash danger close 15. So definitely do that. Get your 15% off. I uh, definitely recommend both the interval short and the tactical short. They are both awesome. And uh, I'll be wearing these pants a lot more here. I actually I'm going to go running in these. Um, cause I'm getting back after it. It is that time. Uh, it's been a while since I've gotten out there and gotten after it and doing anything other than skiing or hiking or playing with the kids or hunting or whatever. Um, but, uh, time to get back on it. So, uh, running in the mornings, doing some burpees, um, just that's about it for now because, uh, I still have to write books, still have to do screenplays, do all that sort of thing. So, uh, but getting out there to clear my head in the mornings in the tactical short, Yes. So once again, 10,000.cc uh slash danger close fifteen for fifteen percent off your order. You will not regret it. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. I want to talk today a little bit about Warpaw wine. And you can go to warpaw.com, and check it out. Look at that bottle. Ho oh, ho. Uh my buddy, Andrew Arabito, uh, former teammate, Seal, he's been on the podcast before, you know him as the owner, founder, operator of Half Face Blades, right here, of which you know I am a fan, if you've read the novels or followed me for a half a minute on the social channels, but uh, Warpaw Wine, I am so excited to give this a shot. Uh, I need to get another bottle, though, because I want to want to save one, and then I want to drink one. Um, but what a great label that is. And you just might find it in the next James Reese thriller in the blood, which is coming on May 17th. Uh, this just might be in those pages. So uh, be to love what you're doing out there, my friend. Uh, thank you so much for the bottle sincerely appreciated. And uh, for those of you who do not have a half face blade, I know they're kind of hard to f- come by, but uh, I think they do drops what is every Friday, I think. Um, and if you've read the books, you'll remember that one from the terminal list right there. But uh, love these blades. Love what Beto is doing out there. And uh, yeah, check them out on the social channels and then uh, track down one of these blades because um, they're awesome. Beto, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Jason Casper, go to jason Casper, and that's K-A-S-P-E-R. Find out more about his books there and where to follow him on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is my website, jackcarusa.com for the merch and on the social channels at JackcarUSA. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And in the blood. The next novel in the James Reese saga is coming in hot on May 17th in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook, and is available for pre order now. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is sincerely appreciated. Take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.